4: just being
2: me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working
5: adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hey, everybody.
4: Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened... Uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own
6: decisions. Robert, do you want to grunt so we can start
4: the podcast? Um, I think we should just start the podcast with you asking, Robert, do you want to grunt so we can start the podcast? <laughs> um, that, that seems av- avant-garde. I don't know what avant-garde means, but this is it. Could happen here, a podcast about how things are falling apart and how maybe, maybe they don't always need to be falling apart. Maybe we could do better. Uh, speaking of doing better, you know w- one thing that sometimes helps us do better: getting getting in the face of people fucking shit up and being like, "Hey, that's not that's not cool. Don't be doing that, Garrison. That's your lead-in. Take it from here."
6: Yeah. Hi. Uh, so <laughs> we I've been I've been trying to keep better be, a, a better job of like following ecological defense movements happening both in the states and in other countries i know there was there was a big one up in canada recently uh, there was with, a
4: huge one in germany too just yeah, the other an, day yeah.
6: yeah um i know the the one the one in canada there's a uh the uh i forget i forget what the actual uh indigenous group is called um Maybe maybe someone else. Oh, the the, the
4: the um uh um Hausa no Sauti? Um, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the
6: the people who who uh who t- took back their land and blocked the road off, and now the RCMP the Unistotan,
7: the Unistotan, and the Wet'suwet'en. The oh yeah them. yeah 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 yeah. Yes, yeah. thank you.
6: Um, there we go. Yeah, basically t- t- taking their land back and b- blocking off the road, and now RCMP is getting called in, and we'll see how that develops. Yeah, um, and in.
4: Guatemala, there's protests against Canadian mining um, in uh, Maya indigenous community that have, have have gotten pretty heavily militarized at this point. So that's a, fun.
6: There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of there's stuff. There's a lot of stuff on, on yes. the ecological defense uh, side of things, mm-hmm. um, in, including including in you know the Pacific Northwest here with all of with all of the forests and and such in this area and part of this kind of exploration into into ecological defense i wanted to talk with some people who are a little a little bit more well versed uh in this type of thing than i am uh so i've uh there's uh, two people have agreed to talk with us um sam and cat both people who work who work on this kind of thing from like an activism standpoint um yeah I'd say hi
1: hello hey y'all
6: uh so very very thankful that they are gonna be talking t- with us today so I thought we could we could probably just start by kind of discussing what forest defense is and how it kind of has a history specifically in this area but but kind of more broadly like if, if people listened to the earth first episodes you know that kind of that covered like anti pipeline stuff but we we didn't really get much into like forest defense and you know like the traditional like tree sits and that kind of thing um so so yeah what's what's up with defending the forest? What's, what's, what's going on with that?
7: Um, yeah, thanks for that great intro. Um, I mean, forest defense is, I think, probably the most characteristic um, type of direct action in this bioregion, and here we're talking from Cascadia right now. I actually moved out here from the East Coast 10 years ago specifically to get involved with forest defense because this place has an incredibly rich history um, of people basically just throwing down, risking life and limb to stop chainsaws from taking down some of the oldest and most special forests out here. Um, and so I'd say, you know, for, forest defense, direct action is in a lot of ways rooted right here um, in this bioregion. And obviously, um, like all kinds of movements, things have changed over the course of time um, back in the 80s um, when in 70s, when forest defense was really, really kicking up and stopping old growth logging specifically out here when it was kind of like rampant old growth. Um, clear cutting. Um, It really took the shape of trying to focusing on ecology, focusing on the integrity of these ecosystems and basically like doing everything possible to stop the chainsaws. And um, now obviously a lot has changed. Uh, We have the Northwest Forest Plan and some policies which are doing better to kind of like protect old places and old forests. But at the same time, The same shit is happening. Um, You know, the timber industry is great at using euphemisms to kind of cover up its clear cutting anyways and finding policy loopholes to target some incredible places. And now I think um, where we're at with like the direct action movement is we're in the context of climate change. So we're not just defending forests for the sake of these like incredible ecological strongholds but we're also defending them because we recognize that forest defense is climate defense this is a like environmental justice issue it's a human issue it's a community issue Um, And so now direct action, I think, is, um, you know, happening not just in the name of our forest, but in the name of our communities and our future. Um, But it's just as um, rich um, now as it has ever been. And um, especially right now, and especially since the 2020 fires, which I know we'll get into, people have been um, throwing down all over this fire region to protect what's left of our forests.
4: Yeah, and I think it's it's good to get into kind of why how the fires have impacted this because one of the shady things that has been done is we had, I think most people in the country are aware Oregon had unprecedented wildfires uh, this year, and we had well, unprecedented it, it, it wildfires yeah. last year, and we we we're going to have unprecedented wildfires every year for a while, um, and whenever these fires run through, they don't like destroy every tree in their wake, but they char them. And logging companies then come in under the guise of like, well, we have to make this area safe so that like the fires don't burn here next year. So we got to cut down all of these trees um, and and clear cut this part of area of public forest. So like as you're driving around in forests that you used to be able to do stuff in, you'll find areas that are just like blocked off because mining companies are coming or logging companies are coming through and clear cutting all of these trees that could very easily recover from the fire. Um. Or that weren't even burned by it, but were just like in this area that they said, okay, well, we have to clear this out in order to make it safe. And it's kind of this way to like backdoor in the guise of fire protection, like expand logging. Yeah,
1: and just to add to that too, the logging companies love to say that the reasons we have increased wildfires because there's an overgrowth in the forest because of the Northwest Forest Plant, because there's more protections for the forest. Fires are happening worse because we're not getting there, bogging the forest and removing all the fuel.
7: Mm -hmm. So you have like this two part thing that like Kat just mentioned, where like on the one hand, companies are like, we need to log more to prevent wildfire, which is bullshit. And we can talk about why. And on the other hand, after fires burn through an area, they're like, we need to log because we need to help the forest recover ecologically. Also, we need to salvage all of the timber before it rots and goes bad. And like (laughs) Uh all of these reasons. And so basically, it's just like fire has become the excuse to just like log preemptively and log after the fact. And yeah, it's a total, total shit show.
6: Yeah. I mean, I think this this kind of falls into capitalists trying to use climate change is just another way to find things to extract and things to grow on. Right. It's they're They're going to try to find their own way to sneak in when all of this, you know, ecological disaster is happening to, you know, sell you whatever green safe product is going to help against the collapse or, you know, package things in a way that makes it seem like it's solving this, you know, problem, but it's actually, it's part of, it's part of the same thing. You, you or see so it's you like, ethically like every, logged every wood from the, yeah. Yeah, 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 right? It's, it's, you see, this in every single industry and it's always, it's, it's going to be like this, because this is the only way that capitalism knows how to address this issue is by just turning it into another, <clears> turning it into an, another thing to consume and another, another thing to sell and package. Pretty, pretty grim. Yeah, and totally. there's I
4: mean, there's cascading effects too, because they they cut down these trees in under the guise of making it safe for the next fire season, but which also makes a big chunk of land a lot more vulnerable to like mudslides and the torrential raining that we're having right now. Mm-hmm. Um and that's also gonna get more common because that's how fucking climate change works. It's it's just like the comprehensive fuckery.
7: Comprehensive fuckery. And let us yeah. be clear too that. Logging doesn't actually work to prevent wildfire. You know, even, you know, they they say that it does, but the kind of logging that they do in the name of wildfire prevention just looks like clear cuts. And we have a pretty robust body of science now showing that those kinds of activities actually make fire hazard more severe for local communities. So that's like one of the things they're doing. And we've been calling it just gaslighting. Like they're gaslighting all of us by saying, you know, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. We're taking care of you all. You know, we're barely logging at all. And then we've got community members on the ground, um, despite the closure orders, who are like, actually, there's a lot to see here. And you all are like completely devastating the landscape and further harming our communities. Um, so, yeah, it's total gaslighting.
4: Yeah. And Oregon has both in terms of like watching fires and watching logging some like rules that are not in place in other places areas especially for like even for for press and and the like like it's it's actually hard to get in to look at this stuff um without you know breaking some sort of law technically which is not at all shady um yeah
7: yeah I feel like that's another important thing and maybe Kat can jump on too is just um basically I mean I think what people aren't understanding is that after the fires the these federal forest managers closed gates and essentially um, are converting public land into private land by, you know, using the threat of violence to kick people out if they go onto their public land. And since 2020, and they say until 2023, at least, the only folks allowed behind these gates are cops and loggers. And so this is like literally, um, you know, the enclosure of our public lands and like the privatization of our public lands so that cops and loggers can do whatever the hell they want.
4: Yep. And it's the kind of thing, I mean, it's the kind of thing that people, if you're, if you're, if the, if the Bundys and that group actually meant the stuff they were saying, like the rhetoric they were putting out, it's the kind of thing they would be pissed off about too, because you're right, it is the enclosure of public land by the government um, and corporations without any kind of uh, consent from the people who are supposed to be the collective owners of that land. It's, it's, uh. Uh, again, something that a lot of people should be angry about, who aren't angry about, because there's been this huge propaganda campaign in the northwest about timber unity and the like, and like supporting the timber industry um, by destroying like the single greatest gift this entire part of the world has. Uh, it's it's pretty frustrating.
6: Yeah. Frustrating. Anyway, I have to. We have to actually have a quick break so I can go watch my soccer game at the Timber Stadium. Uh, mm-hmm. completely unrelated. So, I'll mm-hmm. be right back. I'm going to but... drive
4: out to Wheeler, Oregon myself, but we all have different <laughs> things to do during the break.
6: Um, but also in the break, I guess we can probably do an ad break here because why not? All right. Yeah, everybody loves ads. And we're back, still talking about uh force defense. I want
4: to there's something that people should probably know before we go further about the way that that Oregon works. So, for a while, Oregon is a place where you can't get elected um in a lot of parts of a lot of populated parts of Oregon, if you're a Republican, so the Republicans just play nice um, and and pretend and like throw out some some social justicey language while while still doing all of the extractive stuff they were going to do anyway, and that's the story with like Ted Wheeler um, and his family. So Ted Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, comes from timber money his father was a major Republican donor. Not that the Democrats don't have a lot of extractive history behind them, but, like, it's it's very obvious what's happening with the Wheelers, where um, they were huge Republican donors and huge backers of the right, and then Oregon had this kind of switch politically, um, and so Ted Wheeler just started throwing out nice social justice-y language. But the the whole, you know, he's, he's, I'm sure, going to make a run for governor at some point in the near future, and y- y- you've got this, like, this dressed up, uh, ex- very extractive logging industry and politicians that always find a way to kind of make it seem palatable to the liberal majority. Um, that and they've gotten pretty good at that because it doesn't. Uh, I don't know. I, I think maybe we're coming to the end of this period, but like I haven't, I haven't seen up until this last year a lot of widespread kind of outrage about the clear cutting. Um, And they also hide it pretty well. Like if you're driving through these beautiful public forests in Oregon, the areas that are right along the road will generally be pristine and you'll see old growth and everything. But sometimes you can see as you like turn a corner or something that like, oh, that old growth only goes back a couple couple of dozen yards and then it's a clear cut. Um, And they'll 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 hide it so that it's it's not as obvious because they know it upsets people. So there's this there's this kind of surprisingly um, surprisingly thorough campaign to do as much of this as possible without uh, upsetting people, Um, which which means there's a potential to upset people, which means there's a potential to actually stop this if enough people get upset. But it's. You know, you're you're going against folks who have thought a lot about how to do this in a way that isn't going to upset the apple cart. So how do you upset the apple cart, I guess is what I'm asking.
7: Well, I think one way that we upset the apple cart is by bringing people out to these places. And, you know, in the action that happened on Tuesday, that looked like disrupting and disobeying a federal closure order mm-hmm. in order to bring people out to these places um, you know, basically metaphorically walking behind what you were describing, the beauty strip along yeah. the highway and seeing what's behind it. Um, and, you know, as we were saying earlier, unfortunately, because of all these federal closure orders after the fire, that looks like risking, um, you know, repercussions, state repression, um, arrest even um, in order to just lay eyes on it. But that is the way that we tip the apple cart. We get people to see these places so that it cuts through the gaslighting that the industry is doing, and people can literally, viscerally feel and see the damage. Um, and there's no way to convince them that that's okay once they see it.
4: And how do you do? About, go about like finding people to bring into this, convincing people to come. Like, what does kind of that effort look like?
7: You want to answer this one, Cat? You did a ton of recruitment.
1: Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, I think a big part of it is getting them while they're young. Um, I think that, like, young people right now are already pretty radicalized um, compared to 10 years or so, probably because of, I think, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the use of social media in those movements. Um, So I am a college student, and we're seeing, like, so many people coming in and ready to throw down. Like, they just cannot wait to get involved and will kind of just show up to anything. Um, So I think that that's, like, a major tactic for sure. Um, and then also making sure that when you have like a an action that you're recruiting people for, that it's um, very easy to plug in. It's like very accessible, um, and kind of just like having it organized very well, so it's not daunting to come in. Do you want to add to that, Sam? Well, just to like
7: share a little more about like how we did that with this particular action that happened on Tuesday. Um, basically, you know, we <laughs> it was a Tuesday, rainy freezing middle of the forest planning this action did not think in and behind a federal closure order so everyone on site risking arrest um and planning this action it felt like we would be lucky as shit if we got 10 people out there um but i will say um it was easy as shit to get 50 people out there and that's That's because people care um and you know i think we did in terms of organizing strategy, we use the affinity group model. And so we had a core, you know, there was a core group of organizers and those organizers recruited through affinity groups and their affinity groups. And um, that helped to keep kind of information secure and um, you know, everything tightly organized, but um, people want, people were really desiring to get together and do something, especially like the past couple of years of COVID people are just like eager to do something um, and on top of that, you know, we, we promised that this isn't just an opportunity to potentially get arrested, but this is an educational opportunity and a movement building opportunity. So while the road was blocked um, with a slash pile and a fire truck, there were workshops going on. There were um, hikes going on in the forest that's supposed to be cut. Um, there was discussions about know your rights trainings and affinity groups. We had, um, a band, um, playing on top of a fire truck and there was a dance party. And basically, you know, we were like building community and solidarity, um, in a positive way while fucking shit up. I think that's the key.
4: (laughs) And I mean, where do you, uh, how, how do you like, what is the, hmm, let let me think of a way to phrase this what is kind of the next step here because they 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 haven't started logging this area yet but they're kind of doing like the pre-prep work um what do you what do you think actually can be done to to halt it like is it is it a, a pro- like i, I cuz it it seems to me that it's there's got to be like a mix of tactics there to actually get them to stop and and you're dealing with a number of different um threats including not just you know, at the state level but these federal closure orders like what is I don't know, what what does the path forward look like to you?
1: Yeah, so there's a preliminary injunction um, being forth by some nonprofits. And so this is a really good example of different tactics coming in. And so um, the preliminary injunction is basically to state that what they're doing, the Forest Service is doing, is illegal. Um, But before that that can be passed, they can come in at any point and log the area. And so that's where direct action comes in to slow them down and halt them as much as possible until the courts can process that injunction. And that feels really huge too. Like what Kat just said is like,
7: where is the place of direct action in forest defense? This is like the golden moment for direct action. While there's like an open legal case that we're waiting on a judge to settle. And the timber industry is like coming in ready to moot out the case by logging before it can even be decided. And like to just add a little bit more backstory too on like, another reason why people are so pissed about this um, is that, you know, this watershed has been, I think like beloved and also embattled since the eighties, like the infamous Easter massacre logging event happened in the same watershed where could you
4: could you explain? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no,
7: totally. Um, it, it in 1989 um, a timber company was planning to Clear cut log, old growth forest out there, and started moving on it on Easter um, in the snow. And a bunch of badass direct action activists set up a five tiered blockade on a logging road to hold off the logging, and successfully did for um, days and days until a bunch of them, I think over a dozen folks, got arrested, thrown in jail, and the forest was clear cut. Um, so, hence, you know, the Easter Massacre name. Um, but a ton of folks. Who you know still work in forest defense in the Spire region were there and remember that story and were with us um, when we were out there this week telling that story and you know since then between 1989 and now people have been showing up again and again and again in this watershed because it is so special to try and fight off logging and myself and Kat have been a part of efforts over the past handful of years to um, fight off a number of logging projects out there. We were successful in doing that. We actually like smacked the Forest Service's grubby hands off of a bunch of old growth because our scrappy friends spent days exploring this watershed and documenting, doing like site-specific science, uh, citizen science documentation and giving it to the Forest Service. And we fought them and won and protected a bunch of the forest. And then the fires came through and they closed the gates and they secretly changed all of these contracts to include clear-cut logging. And so that is why there is an open lawsuit because we believe it's illegal what they're doing. It's sketchy
4: and illegal. Yeah. But it does, it does illustrate like kind of the depth of the fight necessary, not just in forest defense, but at all efforts of kind of resisting the extractive industries that are driving a lot of climate change. It's it's not enough. It's never enough to win the first victory. They're going to find some way to 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 swoop around to the flanks and try to take it away from you like they're doing right now, um, which is exhausting. Um, it seems exhausting, but uh, it doesn't mean it. it you, you can ignore it.
7: It's fucking exhausting. Yeah. I, what I always say is like our forest, our federal management agencies, they like suffer from this powerful amnesia where they just like keep coming back with the same bullshit proposals but like our movement does not suffer from that. And we are just like building power and getting stronger and getting more successful. So like when people left on Tuesday, um, there was a promise that people will be back if logging happens. And we're very sure that that will be the case.
4: And if, if people are in the Cascadian bio region and uh, are like, well, this sounds pretty sweet. I want to, I want to, I want to keep, keep some trees where they are as opposed to, putting them on the back of a truck to drive somewhere else. Uh, how could they get involved? Where where might they reach out to?
7: Well, there's a few different groups who were a part of this. Um, definitely um, the Portland Rising Tide, Cascadia Forest Defenders. Um, Kat can talk about Climate Justice League and um, maybe the action that you all put on yesterday as a follow-up and like how folks can get involved with that. Um, but basically, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter um, and Instagram and, and please, um, you know, keep a lookout cause we will be, we'll be getting it out far and wide if there is a call for folks to get out there again.
1: Yeah. And climate justice league is an org, um, at the university of Oregon and people are free to just join the organization. Community members are also involved. Um, but we did put on an event yesterday where Tyler Ferris of Ferris logging or first timber, um, who is actually the company that bought the rights to Brighton Bush, which was the area where we did um, the action on Tuesday. He was giving a speech at the University of Oregon um, to talk about post-fire logging, which was just like crazy timing. They kind of just like put it in our lap. And so we recruited from that action. And we're like, let's disrupt the hell out of this um, talk. And so we like showed up and kind of tried to sneak in. They were having Zoom issues, which like luckily distracted them from the fact that there was like 40 or 50, like, pretty punk, anarchy-looking kids in the room. Um, But we, like, let him go on for a little bit, and then we started to ask him questions that he obviously didn't know the answer to. Um, We kept, like, asking questions about, you know, the science says this, but you're stating this. Where are you getting your science from? And he kept saying things like, well, that's more of a political question, and the statistics don't really back up what you're saying. Um, And then, yeah, we just chanted and made him really nervous.
4: Yeah. And as a heads up, if you're if you're looking to win an argument on a Zoom call, you can just say uh, the statistics don't back you up without citing statistics. It's 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 really the easiest way to do that.
6: I guess I am kind of curious for like you guys said you've you've prevented, you know, some some of the stuff in the past by doing stuff like documentation um, and, you know. When, when, when that kind of thing becomes not enough, and you know, this this area does have a a a rich history of kind of direct action stuff to protect forests, with again also like a mixed success. Like by no means does direct action always always work to do anything. Right now we still have the Line Three pipeline. We still have all of these things that direct action has tried to prevent, but it turns out a lot of the kind of direct action that's associated with these type of like ecological things is 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 kind of more performative than anything else you know like it it is kind of like a a tree sit is about gaining media media like publicity because they're gonna get you down right like eventually and it's and it's and it's gonna be painful because like you're not gonna be sitting up there for years to 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 prevent the tree from being logged so how, how close do you think we are into to like reaching that kind of territory like it was in like the 90s and 80s where it is like a lot of a lot of people like blocking off roads and doing and and doing that kind of thing, you know, more like you know, w- w- once it crosses into that, it's more like autonomous. It's not it's not like led by a single organization by any means. It's more it's more decentralized. But do you see that kind of happening soon? And you know how 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 do you think we can balance out direct action with like other like thoughtful means of Trying to draw attention to these things and maybe actually and, and other things like, like actually physically physically preventing the logging of certain areas.
7: That's such a good question. And um, I, I'm really thankful that we're talking about strategy because um like, kind of like I mentioned, I moved out here like 10 years ago to do forest defense work and have seen so many instances in where people are trying to do direct action in a in a time and space where it doesn't make sense, um, where it's like basically. Slated to it's going to lose because um, it's just impossible to, as you said, you know, hold this blockade for weeks and weeks and weeks in the snow um, indefinitely, you know, as we, you know, as they continue to try to log indefinitely. So there's definitely a sweet spot for where um, the the, the sort of direct action that we're talking about, like blockading, where that is most useful. Yeah. And that sweet spot is definitely when there is another decisive move, like another like legal victory that's waiting in the wings. Or um, you know, we won one in Washington without a legal victory because we shamed the shit out of the Department of Natural Resources in the Seattle Times. And they were like, whoa, we're sorry. Um, and so direct action held off something until we were able to sufficiently shame them and deter them. But typically they don't shame well. Um, and so typically, um, you know, we need a legal. There needs to be a legal element um, backing it up. So direct action is a time buyer. But that said, like obviously, blockading things is not the only type of direct action. And part of the rich history of forest events in the spire region is other kinds of more um, necessarily, you know, discrete kinds of direct action that. Um obviously, you know, I'm um not a part of speaking on this radio show, but um nope. would would publicly um you know say like those things probably need to happen. And I hope they fucking happen. What,
6: what what I could say is that I've I've seen these things happening in other places, like in like in the Atlanta defending forest. Uh, movement right now I have I I have seen evidence that individuals not associated with any group are uh putting spikes in trees and that is that is that is something that is happening right and mm-hmm. all that takes is one person right it's that's not like a group of 20 people going into the forest to do that that's like one person in, in an afternoon right so those are the types of like single person direct actions which again yeah any type of direct action is is gonna be scary right you're you're w- once you start doing that that is, you know, that introduces certain things that will is, is kind of is kind of more frightening to you as a person. Um but but it's it is something that is happening in other places. Um and it has shown to at the very least upset the people who are wanting logging to happen. Generally they're not thrilled when they when they find when when they find these things. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah.
7: Yeah, because like it's like it's I mean, I think like when it comes down to it, it's like about Knowing what your goal is with this tactic, like on, you know, in in the action that happened this past week, there was an understanding that the goal was to, you know, shine a light on this thing that's happening in secrecy, shame the Forest Service and build movement, movement building so that we're ready uh, yeah. When people need to throw down for real, and, and, and that might happen soon, we weren't trying to hold the space for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, that wasn't the goal. So, like going in, being like, "What kind of an action are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? Are we trying to be decisive? Are we trying to like shape the conditions necessary for success and like culture build? Are we trying like what are we actually trying to do?" And then like coming away with that.
6: Having having that clear having a clear sense of that beforehand, I think really really is crucial. Because I've definitely uh, observed direct actions where that is not the case and people have not th- th- thought those things through. And it becomes the kind of unfun version of chaos um, where, you know, things, things don't really get done and you're just kind of sitting around and everyone's kind of slightly miserable because, again, you're in a freezing forest um, and no one really knows what the hell they're doing. Um, so definitely having those kind of things thought through beforehand is extremely useful <laughs> when you're deciding to trudge your way into uh some cold dark woods. Yeah, um, we're going for
7: chaotic good, not chaotic evil.
6: Yeah. Well, a little bit of chaotic. Well, it, dep- it depends it depends what, what we mean by evil. Evil evil to some people. We we yeah. Anyway. Um any any other kind of uh historical notes on forest defense or any other kind of r- random random tidbits you like to mention before before we close out?
7: The one thing that I feel like is super important to say to people is that Forest defense is not just about protecting forests. It's about protecting all of us. We know now like forest defense is climate defense. Our forests are our best natural tool for fighting climate change. And also like we need them here. Most of Oregonians 80% get their drinking water from forested watersheds. Like they literally are sustaining all of us. And so, yeah, we hope folks join like not just for the sake of like being, you know, hippie tree huggers even though you know some of us are but also because like we need to survive as a people and as a planet and um it's, for us our best way to do that
6: it's it's the cheapest most advanced form of carbon capture we have yet so yeah seems seems kind of a uh, asinine to chop that all down to build some shitty sheds
4: mm-hmm. all right well that's a a, a sode
2: just being me. Amy Winehouse Back to Black directed by Sam Taylor Johnson rated R under 17 not a minute without parent only in theaters May 17th.
5: The wait is almost over get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced every rivalry, every rematch every rookie debut every game revealed the 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
3: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people.
4: It's it could happen here. The podcast that occasionally has ads from Washington State Highway Patrol. On a completely unrelated note, Garrison, you want to talk about the Washington State Highway Patrol today?
6: I I sure would love to talk about our uh, our our good friends at the Washington State Patrol, Um, because yeah, they just uh, they've they've come up on my radar in in an unrelated matter, and And now we're going to talk about matter. Yeah, so now we're going to talk about them. Yeah, so this is the show about things falling apart and kind of part of societal and political stuff kind of crumbling, usually that gets related to some type of law enforcement agency more often than not. Oh, yeah. uh, In terms of like tensions rising and stuff. Sure. Because a lot of, you know, force gets gets, uh, exerted via law enforcement. And uh, one such law enforcement. Yeah. And one such agency that does this is called the Washington State Patrol. Um, Yeah. So oh man, I think I've they heard were. Of them before. I I I don't know. I I just discovered them recently. Oh, um, <laughs> uh-huh. cool! So th- they were founded exactly 100 years ago, um, and they were originally called the Washington State Highway Patrol. Um, now they're just the Washington State Patrol. They removed highway, but they still do the same thing. They're basically the glorified traffic cops um, who operate all around all around Washington State. Um, and we're gonna talk about some of the ways that. They've been making things worse within the past decade. Um, I'm sh- since they have a 100 year history. I'm sure we can find lots of historical examples. Um, but we're we're gonna we're gonna do stuff that's more that is more recent because this is you know generally trying to keep things around the the current the current crumbling. Um, and because we're gonna talk about police, the the first the first thing we're gonna be discussing, oddly enough, is uh, racism. Um, oh my god! Because I know. Um, Yay. When you think of Washington State Patrol, that's you know it's it's kind of shocking that they might have a race issue. Um, so anyway, uh, t- uh, twelve years ago, I, uh, researchers working with. Uh, working with the Washington State Patrol, uh, found that uh, troopers were searching drivers from minority communities, particularly um, uh, local Native American tribes, at a much higher rate than uh, than white people. And they recommended an additional study, which the uh, Washington State Patrol uh, declined to uh, to investigate further. They they were like, no, um, no no more studies. <laughs> so. Meanwhile, since then, uh, the troopers have continued continued to search Native Americans at a at a rate much higher, uh, more than five times than that of uh, of of white people in oh, the area. Oh, cool! Yeah, so, seems, But there are five
4: times as the popu- there There's five times as many indigenous people in Washington as white people, right? There, That's, there's not. Um, oh, oh, oh! Yeah. Okay. So,
6: an, an analysis by uh, Investigate West uh, showed that the patrol continued to do searches. At, at much ele- elevated rates uh, for for uh, Black people, Latino, Pacific Islanders, and natives within Washington State, um, and yet, uh, when when troopers did decide to to search white motorists, they were more likely to find drugs and contraband, um, mm. which is something the Washington State Patrol actually acknowledges: is that w- w- when they search people of minority communities, they are uh, uh, less likely to find to find uh, illegal things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, that I
4: mean that's yeah nationwide and yeah. and very. Very robust data.
6: So, um, government records obtained uh, via like a, a freedom of information requests and various other you know uh, pu- oh, yeah. public, pu- public records searches um, also show that uh, there 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 is a state law that Washington State Patrol is supposed to collect and report semi annually to the criminal justice training commission in Washington um, uh, about you know race and ethnicity data of motorists stopped by troopers. But mm-hmm. uh, so this is, this is supposed to happen semi annually. But the agency uh, reported those findings only three times in the past fifteen years.
4: Oh, um, that which is sounds kind of like the Portland police re- not doing the things that federally they're supposed to do because they're so violent. Cool. Yeah, yeah, so being out of compliance with a bunch of federal regs. Thre- three, three times,
6: three times in fifteen years is not semi-annually, uh, based on what I no. know. The term semi-annually, no, to no, that's mean.
4: semi-decadely.
6: <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, Based on responses for over 30 public records requests um, from from three different agencies looking looking at Washington State Patrol and more than like 50 interviews with current and former law enforcement officials and uh, people with experience interacting with Washington State Patrol um, and also data from millions of traffic stops. uh, All this was looked at in total examined about eight million traffic stops from 2009, 2015. This is what investigate West was doing. Um, which, w- which was the most recent data available, and the analysis found that uh, it, it, it focused on 20, twenty-two thousand incidents of what researchers called like high discretion searches. That's when troopers had the most like personal leeway to decide whether or not to pull over and search a vehicle. Um, black drivers were twice as likely to be searched as white drivers, and Latinos and Pacific Islanders were eighty percent more likely to be searched uh, of of these incidents where oh. officers had discretion and like they could choose whether or not to pull someone over. Um, so it wasn't like it wasn't like they were like obviously speeding or doing you know like like you know like like regular like actually observable traffic violations. This is when like people could choose. When the investigate West thing got published, they contacted Washington State Patrol, and the spokesperson said that uh uh here's 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 the quote. That uh, race race was not the only factor when troopers decide whom to search, and that's partially because blacks, Native Americans, and Latinos are more likely are more likely to be searched regardless of how much discretion troopers have. Which that doesn't really make very much sense. Um, I don't know what they mean by that. New
8: spokesperson.
6: I don't know what they mean. Is they're more likely to be searched, regardless? Christ! Brutal.
8: What? What the? Who? Who was that bad at? Checking the copy,
6: which is weird, because later on uh. the spokesperson said that um, same, we're in a same, basic, same person, same guy. Oh, cool. We're in a basic, we're in a, recent, we're, in a, we're in a basic agreement that minorities are searched at higher rates, but we find less contraband. So, oh, um, good. Well, and he, well, at least he they also admit it. he also noted that complaints about like a racial bias accounted for little more than ten percent of all complaints of the state uh, patrol uh, filed last year. So I guess he thinks that's a good, he thinks that's a good stat. Yeah, Um, I'm sure he's proud of that. Yeah. Um, And another kind of uh, not great thing is that uh, the analysis found that not only are Native Americans more likely to be searched, but all of the most of those searches happen always at like the edges of reservations. Um, the analysis found mm. that uh, the two highest concentration of searches of Native Americans by state troopers are on the u uh, s ninety seven where it uh, encounters um a a, a reservation at uh, Olmec, about about a mile from its intersection at uh, state road one fifty five, which is and and more than one hundred and thirty miles south of uh, of the same when the same highway uh, enters another reservation. so, nearly one third of, of high discretion of high discretion searches so when troopers can decide whether or not to pull someone over uh, like like they've they, they, they more discretion whether they can so w- one third of those happen on these two stretches of highway right on the edges of these reservations so like they're patrolling outside these reservations to specifically do this. Um there was a, I I I saw an interview on this topic that talked to, that talked to 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 Native Americans in this area and they're like yeah every time we leave the reservation we get pulled over but then we watch tons of white motorists go by and no one cares like in like and, and they're like you doing like they're just speeding by it doesn't matter um yeah. so yeah that is that is the uh first first you know unsurprising tidbit about uh some an organization who started as as a highway patrol is yeah they're going to pull people over who are not white more often that is yep. that's pretty not not super They're shocking gonna be psyched um, to do that
8: yeah and then make so, a, a public statement like lol yup
6: yeah that that does that does sound a lot like what the washington state patrol uh sounds like um so Horrible. we're gonna we're, so that that was that was the first obvious thing uh th- th- this next part's a, a little bit more fun um so in, in, in 2009, the Washington State Patrol made, made the decision to uh, fire eight troopers, which is, you know, pretty, pretty rare. Um, and the reason why they got fired is because they used uh, fake uh, diplomas to claim pay raises. Yeah. Oh. So there was there was this whole scheme about getting fake diplomas to get the troopers more money, uh, like 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 individual people. There's, there's this whole this whole operation going on it resulted in uh, in in eight in eight people getting fired so troopers can can boost their pay about 2% by earning a two d- a two year degree or 4% with a four year degree and there was this group of uh of uh, troopers who just uh started just forging diplomas <laughs> Ah, see <laughs> Garrison, this
4: is a separate conversation, but they didn't need to forge diplomas. They could have just become doctors of uh of, of, of magic, like uh that, that like you're what gonna I, become. That yeah. is what I've tried to do. They could have just gotten um, that religious PhD.
6: Yeah. So There's all sorts is,
4: of fake diploma mills. Come on, uh, Washington State Highway Patrol. Yeah, do better. So, yeah, you this, lazy this is pretty bastards. funny.
6: So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so The investigation began after federal agents shut down a diploma mill in uh, Spokane. Criminal charges were not uh, filed, but the patrol did decide to fire these eight troopers. Yeah, so that is one one of the more funny things we'll be talking about today. And I think it's time for an ad break. Um, Oh,
4: yeah. Speaking of funny, here's these ads that may or may not be the people we're talking about. No, unrelated. Unrelated. Ah, we're back which is also unrelated.
6: Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that's pretty common around police is that the past few years, they uh, generally don't think COVID is really real. Or I hate they... that
4: it is the past few years now. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I don't love that. We're <laughs> yeah, I don't right. love that.
6: Robert, we're, we're less than a month away from 2022.
4: <laughs> yeah. I hate that it's like, yeah. I mean, fuck, it's, it's like, what? It's almost two years.
6: Almost 10% of your entire life has been COVID. I'm not going to think about math. Um, yeah. So generally, sure. they, they don't think COVID's real, and also they think vaccines are the mark of Satan or something. Um, yeah. Well, obviously they are. But yeah. Yes. So in 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 mid October, uh, this this past October, Washington State Patrol announced that uh, 127 of its employees uh, lost their job. Uh, after the state's COVID nineteen vaccine mandate uh, deadline of October eighteenth, so unlike the Portland Police Bureau, who uh, who the port who port and many other cities where city officials caved to, to the demands of the police that uh, vaccine mandates not be not be extended towards police, uh, this did not happen in Washington, and they actually got it enforced. So uh, over a hundred uh, patrol employees uh, quit quit their job, including uh, sixty four commissioned officers. Uh, it was cool. uh, like six sixty seven troopers, six sergeants, and one captain. Um, right. Yeah. So, you know, Washington State Patrol has about two thousand personnel within like w- between like eight districts. Um, so, losing like a hundred and twenty seven of them is not a is not an insignificant loss. Um, no. And it's it's been a it's it has been been trying to hire a lot more people in the in the past in the past like a few months because of this. They've been they've been trying to do a lot more recruitment, which is why they're um, I've heard from other people that they are putting uh, uh, advertisements out on the Internet f- to become a Washington state trooper. That makes um, sense. This is something I've I've heard from from people online uh, when I've been doing all of this uh, uh, deep, deep, extensive research. So, mm. yeah, they are they are they are recruiting. Uh, so if you uh, want to be a Washington state patrol officer, uh, don't don't actually. That's a bad idea. Um, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, unless you
4: want to like really fuck with people who live on a reservation, if that's if that's your goal, uh, it seems or, like the Washington State Highway Patrol is your your dream career.
6: Or I have another option for you. Uh, you could also just get COVID and die. Well, and that yeah, is, that is an option. That's an option that too. Look, something it, I think might be freedom better. is what
4: makes this nation great. Uh, so I think you know a uh, a uh, uh, choice anyway continue so, garrison
6: i'm i'm gonna send a picture inside our group chat first because we're gonna we're gonna be talking about one one specific evil uh dude next. I'm sending a picture in the group chat that I want you to look at first just so you get a sense of who we're talking about
4: oh based okay i'm I'm excited
6: <laughs> yeah
8: I don't all right know hit me oh no, oh no. The bow tie really brings it all together.
4: Oh no, you said bow tie, which does not make me optimistic. And not like, Robert. Go- it's oh, fine. No. oh no, what is wrong with it? Who? Uh,
6: yeah, yeah. Who puts it a bow
4: tie is. on a uniform like oh, that? Oh, guys,
6: I found a better quality image. Um, Good this one. God! Here we go. Same image, better. quality. He looks like
4: Tucker Carlson in the Starship Troopers universe when he gets drafted.
6: So, this is the next guy we're talking about.
4: Um,
8: Somehow feels like a hate crime towards the Weasley family.
4: Yeah, so, yeah. It um, feels like a hate crime towards the guy based off Tucker Carlson in Starship Troopers. Who
6: so happens this, this, to
8: be a big fan of Ron Ron Weasley's family?
6: Probably, this yeah. probably, this, yeah. is, this is Sean Carr, um, a former Washington State Patrol uh, sergeant um, who uh, resigned for... Reasons we will discuss. Fun. That's exciting. Yeah. Oh, no. uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, in 2015, an Associated Press investigation uncovered about a thousand officers in the United States who lost their badges over a six-year period for sex crimes or misconduct, such as like uh, this is this is a quote here, which I I disagree with framing here, uh, but this is this is a quote: propositioning citizens or having consensual but prohibited on-duty intercourse. Which is uh, a pretty bullshit way to frame that, because basically you're it's it's police raping people, Um, and police officers being accused of like using their power over people uh, to rape them is extremely common.
4: Yeah, and it's often just like yeah, well the person said okay, and it's like well they said okay to a person with a gun and the legal power to murder anyone they want or put like, them in not, jail yeah like like, like there's a lot not of consent. stuff yeah you no, I yeah. would argue you can't consent uh to sex with a, a police officer who's on duty and in uniform because it's or again, who they have the power to murder anybody they want or
6: or who just arrest you like like it's yeah. a lot of stuff so like there was a study uh, released a few years ago uh that, that analyzed data on like uh, 550 arrest cases from the years of 2005 to 2007 so this is just two years and of uh, and, uh, 400 officers employed by like 320 non- non-federal law enforcement agencies located throughout uh, 43 uh, states, um, and findings indicated that uh, police sexual misconduct in- includes uh, serious forms of sex-related crimes, and the victims of sex-related uh, crimes by police are typically younger than 18 years old. Um, so... It's it happens a lot with minors. So there's a lot like like more like a ridiculously common like if, if you if you Google this, which I, I honestly don't recommend, but you can find like dozens of stories coming out like basically every, like not, not you, you, you'll find at least one new story every month of a kid getting raped by police. It happens pretty commonly. So over the past 10 years uh, in the Washington State Patrol, they've investigated and confirmed four cases of what they call sex on duty, um, according to the agency. And this is including including uh, Sean Carr. Now, Sean Carr's case is particularly uh, sensitive for the agency because he was married to the uh, uh, the daughter of the Washington State Patrol chief, Um and and Sean Carr was also himself a sergeant so he was connected to like the big leagues at the Washington State Patrol so Carr met a civilian woman who also works at Washington State Patrol but as like you know like has like an office job so they isn't isn't a trooper um they met in 2012 and struck up an online friendship and uh, a few months later they uh, both of them told investigators that the relationship uh, did turn sexual um Carr admitted to six sexual encounters over the next like five years with the woman uh, five of which happened when he was on duty and like on state property or driving a vehicle or while in uniform um, but the woman recalled as many as, as 20 and all but one of them were when he was on duty and mm. well and so the woman said that most of their encounters were were what she would describe as consensual uh, but she described three incidents where carr did a uh, uh, push the boundary, and she 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 has described being raped by him uh, multiple times. Yeah. Um. So there was there was uh, an incident. Uh, I think the first one happened at the beginning of 2017. Uh, with in, inside his uh, patrol car in a church parking lot. Uh, the, the woman had recently started dating another man, and Carr wanted to know who it was. When she wouldn't say so, he uh he uh, gr- grabbed her arm hard enough to leave bruises. And the woman said that Carr made her pick from two options: give give up the name of the man or give Carr oral sex. Um, oh
4: God, cool, uh, great so guy.
6: Carr later told investigators that he said this in a quote joking context. Oh, that's the you um, know
4: I was thinking because that's almost exactly my uh, my tight five for
6: my standup set.
9: <laughs>
6: I mean, some some comedians for some reason do like making jokes like that, and not 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 great usually. Not great to normalize that kind of thing. So um, mm. the woman said that she did like uh, like see to his his like commands uh, and she which she said were were like yeah, very much not done and was a cop not consen- sure. yeah and she said it was very much not consensual. Um, she she told investigators that he he raped me on the side of the road. Um, and right. if, if and if it was anyone else besides Carr, she she she, she said she would have called nine one one. So the the second time happened. When uh, a car backed her into a corner of a highway, a way station, and forced her to have sex with him, um, she cool. called it a, a coerced. Car said that consent was mutual, uh-huh. so sure. d- d- despite the sexual assaults uh, and, and 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 like and, and you know and and like assaults, you know, like you know, grabbing someone's arm hard enough to leave a bruise. Uh, she said, the, the woman said she kept in touch with Carr because she was going through a difficult time in her life and she needed somebody to talk to. Yeah, sure. Um, it's
4: complicated. Yeah,
6: that's, yeah. That, that this is, Even this abuse is also com- not un- like, people who are abusive
4: uncommon. can also be emotionally supportive sometimes. Like, that's one of the things about abuse that's such yeah. a real, real motherfucker. Uh, it's not simple. Yeah. So, yeah, c-
6: Carr, Carr may not have gotten in trouble had the woman not confided in another patrol employee after she left her job. Um, Then the other other patrol employee mentioned the situation to someone higher up, triggering an an investigation. Um, And then in 2019, the woman formally reported Carr to uh, to to like the patrol office of professional standards. So records show that the patrol uh, pretty quickly confiscated Carr's badge and gun and placed him on home assignment where he remained until he and he uh, resigned voluntarily. Um, The patrol uh, gave gave the case to the sheriff's office to investigate because of the criminal nature of the uh, allegations. So Carr's personal file includes other on-job violations, including using a taser on a drunk driving suspect who was handcuffed. Cool. And records show that in February of 2013, Carr was accused of uh, fre- frequenting a coffee stand and making unwanted advances on an employee by waiting near her car until her shift ended oh. and making derogatory comments about her boyfriend. Um, uh-huh. So he was also stalking this barista, is what it sounds like. Yep. Um, yeah.
4: Yeah, that is that is what that sounds that's like.
6: That's pretty terrifying. So, Ooh. yeah. So, car K- after the woman told investigators that she was raped after 2019 um uh the uh, the the county sheriff's recommended charges be filed, but she wasn't willing to um she wasn't willing to testify she did not want she did not want do that um and, but but she 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 did' tell prosecutors that she did have one wish that that carr uh again the the son in law of the state patrol chief be be not not allowed to police again um yeah carr, that's a
4: pretty reasonable request
6: <laughs> carr of obviously denied all the accusations of uh nonconsensual sex and assault uh, but, you know, I, I, I did admit to a to a consensual sexual relationship on duty, um, as well as other, you know, like uh, patrol regulation v- violations. Um, he, he resigned uh, in July 2020 before the patrol could decide whether or not to fire him. Um, and then the state went about trying to strip him of his law enforcement certification, a requirement to carry a gun and badge and be hired as law enforcement in Washington. G- getting decertified for misconduct by the Criminal Justice Training Center in Washington is very hard. Uh, very few people have actually been decertified. Um, yeah. <laughs> and to to be certified, the panel must be a uh, panel must be convinced that uh, on duty behavior rose to the level of official misconduct and constituted a crime committed under the color of authority as a peace officer. That's the that's the that's under the color of
4: authority is a, an interesting way to phrase that.
6: So Carr's attorneys uh, argued that the state failed to meet to meet this high bar and there was quote no legal basis to decertify Carr. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, Cjtc, the, the Criminal Justice Training Center, uh, alleged his behavior did constitute official misconduct and failure of duty. But, without action, they didn't actually include the sexual assault allegations. Instead, it contended that he used state resources for his own benefit or neglected to do his duties when he was engaged in sexual activity on duty. So they didn't actually include sexual like assault or anything in this. They just said you were basically like you were because you were doing. you were having like sexual activity on duty you weren't doing your job and that's the reason that we want to decertify you um so the the state of washington has about eleven thousand certified officers at any given time um and since 2003 they've decertified like 230 and at least four of them for on-duty sex and one of those cases was overturned on appeal um but in 2021 around mid-may the CJTC in its final order said that cars uh, constituted uh, 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 crimes of, of failure of duty and official misconduct by uh, among other things, quote, intentionally choosing to pursue his own sexual gratification rather than using his on duty time to perform his lawful responsibilities as a peace officer. So he, he did get decertified, but again, not actually discussing the actual like assaults and rapes. Um, Yeah. So the, the, uh, the The sheriff's county prosecutor's office uh, declined uh, declined to pursue charges on the case last year when the woman was unwilling to testify. But the uh, the, the deputy prosecuting attorney um, uh, did say that she she believed they just happened. Like like she she believes this this stuff happened, but because of the lack of evidence due to time uh, passing and the woman not wanting to testify, there it's hard to prove guilt in court. So they're not going to pursue these charges at the moment. Yeah, that scans. So that that is uh, that is Sean Carr. So that, yeah, he is not not, a, not allowed to police as of May of 2021. That is the a, a cursory glance at the stuff in the Washington State Patrol. Oh, I guess one one other thing I found out uh, today is that uh, so Washington State uh, Patrol has a uh, has a psychologist for um, recruiting. So for basically, for if you want to join the patrol, you have to go like through like a, a psychological screening
4: sure that makes sense
6: and he just just resigned because right, he was he was he was probably going to get fired um this was after uh Seattle Times and Public Radio Northwest News Network uh published a piece sho- showing that uh since 2017 uh the psychological screenings rejected where is it uh rejected 20% of white candidates over the past 4 years um But the psychologists that they hired uh, rejected 33 percent of black candidates, 35 percent of Hispanic candidates and 41 percent of Asian candidates. So, again, I'm not pro people being police in general, but there is a a clear disparity on who they are wanting to become police, like who like who are they? they They're letting in a lot more white candidates than they are letting uh, in candidates of color. Um, Yeah. So this this uh this psychologist screener is is no longer on the job as of like a few days ago. Um yeah, so just an- another n- another level of stuff because yeah, you know, there's they want there to be more white officers than anything else. Um yeah. So yeah, that is that is the uh Washington State Patrol. I guess the one other thing I want to do is I'm going to again send in the group chat. Uh their their current logo, their current logo. Current. Oh, you're smirking!
8: And, you're smirking! Oh, I hate
6: it when you do this.
8: I'm afraid.
4: I don't know, Sophie. Maybe it'll be fine.
8: I mean, maybe it's actually it's
6: it's, it's it's kind of fun.
8: That's their logo.
6: That is their current logo.
8: Did they design it in like paint?
6: <laughs> they d- yes. They probably they probably did design it in MS Paint.
4: Oh man, yeah that that looks like it belongs in an Angel Fire website. Garrison, do you know what Angel Fire was? I do not. Oh my god, you fucking teenagers! Um, yeah, that looks like it belongs in an Angel. F- it, it, I will I will let all of the other people who feel very old right now know that it looks like something you'd see in an Angel Fire website, like shittily animated, blinking across the screen. Yeah,
6: no, like it 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 looks like something from a nineteen nineties website all right
4: um, well now I'm both angry about the police and I feel a
6: thousand years old so this is good oh, that is man. Garrison, you did uh, what a good it. what a good feel what a good feeling you did well it. Th- that that wraps that that wraps it up for today um and hey again I, I I have heard that they are recruiting and they should have a new psychological screener
4: soon so great, great. there I, we go I, I I'm imagining the m- primary psychological screening is you're white right <laughs> that's that's that is what it used to be um I mean, I'm imagining that's what it's going to be still, but maybe not, Garrison. Maybe not. Who knows? All right. Well, this has been a great time. I'm sure everybody's feeling good. Feel Uh, great. Goodbye. Bye. Get out of my house.
3: Could
2: just be a me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters
5: May 17th. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced.
9: Bring
5: every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more.
3: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people you can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.
4: Welcome to the Chudcast. This is a... Crypto Podcast, where we talk about the best NFT investments and how you can get rich too, bro, if you just accept the wave of the future and decentralize your finance and invest in a bank that can take all of your money
9: overnight and hey, disappear because hey. it was
4: really just being run by a guy in Macedonia and he, wow. it was just a rug pull the entire time and you lose your life savings and you have no recourse and that's the fucking future of investments bro
8: hey bro you're <laughs> fired yeah that's fair <laughs> in the
4: real- so this is it could happen here <laughs> yeah, podcast like- about how things are bad sometimes a podcast about how to make them less bad Today we're talking about the former, how things are bad, and we're yeah. we're talking about financialization um and specifically the financialization of like human beings in the endeavor to create art uh and so well art less, is a
6: art is a broad broad term i
4: mean i said the endeavor to okay i'm sure they all want to be creating art well this won't make any sense to people yet so i'm gonna i'm gonna give a brief overview there's an article in the atlantic that dropped on november 29th called what happens when you're the investment uh it's by rex woodbury um who i hate um yep. <laughs> so as a note r- I, OK, let, let me just get the, the 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 nut of the article is and th- there have been a couple of other articles on this guy. Um, his name is uh, Alex Masmej, Um and he is a French kid, I think. Yeah. Who decided to tokenize himself. And what that means is so like you've got the Ethereum blockchain, right? He, he, basically, he's he's putting he's carving up aspects of his like potential future earnings and he's putting those on the Ethereum blockchain as like tokens that people can buy. And the idea is that this kid had wanted to like start a business and be an entrepreneur, but he didn't have any money. So using like on the Ether blockchain, he turned himself into tokens basically, like his potential future earnings and his time. And basically people are able to buy up coins effectively, I mean, not coins, but tokens. Shares um, of the yeah, 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 dollar sign Alex is like the name of the token, which are basically shares. They're buying, he's turned himself essentially into a publicly traded co- company, kind of, um, and holders of uh, his coins are like, he's splitting up 15% of his income for the next three years, basically, among people who like hold his coins, and he raised like 20 grand this way. Um, and it's not just like it's not just his future earnings that are being kind of tokenized. You can also use tokens to like buy retweets from him, or one-on-one conversations, or uh. And here's a line I love: an introduction to someone in his network. And and it's the the overall idea because there's you can find some other good articles. Good as an interesting word to use, you can find other interesting, fascinating articles about this this idea, which is like human beings. Tokenizing their future earning potential, um, in order to, uh, raise money, um, and and it's uh the way this is usually sold is a good thing. In fact, I should probably just read a quote from this Atlantic article to give you an idea of how, uh, Masmej is uh, or of how um um the art the author of the article Rex Good uh, Woodbury is uh is trying to sell this shit. We all have the slightly annoying friend who insists that she knew about so-and-so before they were even famous. When it comes to Taylor Swift, I'm that friend, and I'm more than slightly annoying about it. I was a Taylor fan in her pre-fearless full-on country days, years before Conway interrupted her on stage at the VMAs. But in our current construct of fandom, I'm treated no differently than a fan who discovered Swift on SNL a few weeks back. This would be different, though, if Taylor had done what MassMesh did and turned herself into an investment. She could have issued a social token, whereas non-fungible tokens or NFTs are so-called because of the uniqueness of a digital asset. Social tokens are fungible. In other words, each Alex token is interchangeable with every other Alex token, just like a dollar bill can be traded for any other dollar bill. Say Taylor issued had issued her own token. Let's call it uh, dollar sign Swift. And say she had sold dollar sign What's Swift not, to her biggest all- fans. Yeah, say I was one such fan. Over time, as Taylor's popularity grew, the value of the Swift token would have appreciated. As an early believer, I would have shared in the financial upside of her growing fame. The Swift token I had brought for $100 in 2007 might be worth $100,000 today. The Taylor Swift mini-economy would serve both the singer and early fans like me. As an artist, Taylor could have funded her work by selling dollar signs or swift tokens she might not have needed to sell ownership of her masters and she might have not have been forced to re-record her albums to take back control over her art taylor's fans for their part would have been rewarded for a decade of patronage we're all evangelists for our favorite artists yet we capture little of the value that we help create and that there's a lot that like i find unsettling there one of them is the idea that like yeah, the fact that I was a fan of someone earlier means I should get some sort of reward for it. Like I should be treated differently because I liked it earlier. Which it, you might recognize, like the thing that everybody has been shitting on for like uh, fandoms for years now. Like it's been a it's been a huge thing. With like, yeah, you're yeah. being an asshole if you're if you're talking about like if you think you have some additional ownership of Star Wars because you watched it ten years before the fans today, and so you like different stuff in it. Like that's we all recognize that as like toxic um but the the whole argument of this article is that like no this is how the entire future of creativity should work which yeah. i find unsettling deeply. and
6: it also it also ties into like a really concerning development in parasocial relationships of like oh, being God, able to yeah. like invest in someone to buy a conversation with them in like this yeah. really weird way um and the fact that young artists are going to be pressured into this kind of thing is really uh, scary
4: yeah, because there's, like, one of the things Mass MassMesh did as, like, um, uh, as an experiment was, like, allow people who had bought his tokens to make life decisions for him. Like, tell him when to wake up in the morning and whether or not to eat red meat and stuff like that. And he stated that, like, well, none of this is binding, right? Like, I, I'll, I'll, I might do what they say, but, like, I'm not going to do anything crazy or whatever. But uh, also, this is, like, the first iteration of this. Um, and I... Like this Atlantic article, which I think is unhinged for reasons we'll get into, but it's purely talking about like, look at this incredibly successful person. Imagine if they'd gotten to be incredibly successful using this method instead, and it might have like spared them this thing. But what I keep thinking about is like, okay, well, the vast majority of people like there's no reason to invest in them. Like, yeah, maybe if you come out with a great song or a great video, like, yeah, you could get investments and I'm sure that could work out. I'm sure like Taylor Swift is a successful enough person. I'm sure she could have found a way to succeed under that system, too. But what I think will be much more common, because there's no real reason to anticipate that the average person will have an earnings potential if you give them 20 grand that's greater than 20 grand. Um, The most likely thing is that, like, people just buy shares in poor people to make them do fucked up shit. Yeah, it's right? going like to be how, used how would to, you yeah. not? How would that not be where it goes? Oh, right? Yeah,
6: that's the, That's the only way that this is going to get like used on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Is these yeah, young people, people just selling themselves? People are this going weird to, way.
4: People are going to use the ether blockchain to like crowdfund and crowd uh, cast a new jackass, basically. Like it's going. It's not going to be like a thousand Taylor Swifts all tokenizing themselves. It's going to be like. Millions of people in the global south issuing tokens to, like, vote on whether they roll down the hill in a barrel or in, like, a, 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 a fucking porta a potty Like, I, it's just, it's a nightmare to me to contemplate people actually adopting this.
10: You know, there's, there's a lot of really, like, the thing I think is the most incredible part about this is that, like, okay, so, it, like, it, it basically doesn't matter what, like, economic theory you used to look at it it's like every single one of them tells you something just like absolutely fucked about it and like mm-hmm. you know cuz cuz i mean there there there's 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 some extent to which i look at this and it's like this isn't that much different than the fact you know it's like okay so you're paying someone to do whatever you want but like okay like that's not that much different than just a job right like it's it's not it's not inherently that much different than the fact that everyone is forced to just do wage labor but also, like there's I, I, one of the most interesting things to me that I thought about this when I was when I was reading this was, so do you guys know what capitalization is, yeah, yeah so this is this is just capitalizing a person, right like yeah, this, this yeah, is. it's literally yeah,
6: taking a person public effect yeah
4: it, yeah, into, yeah, it's, it's, turning it's,
6: them into like a tradable share, that's, yeah. like an investment, yeah. I mean, this what, what is I,
4: all one of the things that, like, a Forbes article I found pointed out is like, this is another kind of unregulated securities trading. But,
6: yeah, 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 yeah. But
10: what's, what's interesting to me about it is that, like, okay, so, you know, th- this is also already how accounting wise every corporation sees a person, right? Like, every, every every person in the asset book is, you know, it, it, yeah. is, you know, like a, a wage is just capitalization, right? It's like, how much will you pay now for this
4: much money later? You could, but it's like could... people are doing it to themselves now. Yeah. Which is like <laughs> this. Yeah, you could argue that like elements of this are how like banks treat you when you get a mortgage, right? Um, like, but but also that's a much more rigorous and limited. Like the and limit it has, is that like, it has like, like just...
6: regulations and it yeah. has yeah. rules yeah. for how those things work. It's not some like twelve year old getting a, a like like going onto Coinbase and buying yeah. part of you as a joke with your with like his dad's money, right? Like, yes, yeah.
4: because it's like yeah, because what if it's like. There's no law against a seventeen-year-old. I guess if the, maybe their parents may need to consent, but there, I, there's no law against a seventeen-year-old getting a facial tattoo of like the, the doors of a concentration camp on their face. But what if some kid tokenizes himself for forty grand so he can drop an EP, and that's what like a bunch of four chaners who buy up his his shares want him to do? Um, and maybe the fucking kid does that because he knows it's gonna get him. Because his his brain's not done, and he knows it's going to get him a bunch of fucking social media uh, clout, yeah. and like it's there's a lot of, and there's no way to regulate that. Like it's just an inherently toxic proposition that I don't think the government would. I, I don't know what side of this the government would even step in on. Like, what is the regulation of people deciding? I'm letting random strangers who pay me money vote on what I do with my life.
10: I, what the other thing it reminds me of a lot is like the the micro lending stuff from the '90s where it was like oh we'll we'll like empower these people by we'll go in and uh we're going to give them like a small amount of money and they have to pay it back and it was like you know and, and, and all of the same stuff that you were reading like all the arguments about why this is a good thing are exactly the same as the micro lending ones and that stuff you know there, there there were two ways it turned out one was basically you get the scenario where both sides are scamming each other yeah where you know all the people who are getting these micro loans are just they're just taking the money and walking right like that's you know their 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 thing is oh this is I can just get money like this and we can just keep I can just keep not paying it back and so this I'm so I'm scamming them but then on the other side you have these people who are like oh cool I can give this person this loan and turn them into a debt peon yeah and it and you know and, and the, the 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 really depressing side about it is that, so the, the people who couldn't get away like I mean we're we're literally reduced to debt peons and you know I mean there's a huge wave of suicides. In like, India, is probably the most famous example is wave of suicides, people drinking pesticide because they couldn't pay off these loans, and so and, it, and the the thing that's different about this is that like, I mean, a you're doing it to yourself, but then, b again, there's no regulation, but that also means there isn't any way to force someone to do what you yeah, say it's, it's, you're going to do. Un, yet it's, un,
6: it's unclear how it's going to be enforced, and the other thing that's yeah, unclear is yeah. like. What does losses look like? Like, what what happens when someone, d- like, yeah. cannot make back on, yep. it, like, an investment, but if the investment is a person? How does yeah. that work? And if someone's, like, contractually obligated to give a certain share of their income, what happens when there's not enough income for that? Like, like you know, so th- those types of things.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's no answer to that. Uh, and there's there, nobody – like, the money that's going to be whatever made in this is going to be made before – anyone steps in to to try to answer that, if anyone ever does, like um, it's it's going to be the next because I think we're I think we're heading for a crash with with NFTs. Like there was just an article today about how what is it? Ninety seven percent of NFT trading is done by like 10 percent of people, which further back because the allegations of NFTs is that most of what's happening isn't people actually buying them. It's people. Like the same person using multiple wallets basically trying to jack up the perceived value by throwing a bunch of other internet money that they already have. So it's these these whales who have like a bunch of crypto gaming the system. And we've seen some evidence. The biggest NFT sale ever was like half a billion dollars and it was a guy selling it to himself and then transferring it back into another wallet to try to make it look like it was worth a, a half a billion dollars. Even though no one had actually really paid that for it. Um. So I, I and I think you know that and kind of what we've seen with the the regulations the government's announced for NFTs. I think that's a problem for them in the near future, and I wouldn't be surprised to see this take off next, especially given like the creator economy that we're seeing on like the, the, the kind of that
6: TikTok specifically.
4: Move. Yeah, TikTok. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a rash of big TikTok stars tokenizing themselves and yep. like. I'm not even sure I'm, I'm 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 sure it would be a mix of the person making the tokens being the one doing the scam and the person receiving uh, or the people buying the tokens being the one doing like I'm sure it would be a mix of different kinds of exploitation but it's not going to be good
6: I mean I, and and just like NFTs it, it's going to make like I don't know. Fifty people, super rich, when they when they first start trying it, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. That is that is like when this happens. Like when a TikTok star with twenty five million followers, when they do this, they will make boatloads of money. It's just yep. unclear what happens after Next. that.
10: Yeah. Well, flee to Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I mean
6: that would be the the smart <laughs> like, thing. That to would do. be the smart thing yeah. to do.
10: Yeah.
4: In this Forbes article I found, which is a thousand times better than the Atlantic article. Like even though it's written by someone I think who's also. Into crypto, it's just, it actually it, it asks some of these questions we've been talking about, um, and it cites uh, David Hoffman, who's the COO of a of a tokenized real estate platform, um, on what he sees as some of the problems, like what he, as a guy who supports aspects of this kind of thing, sees as the problems uh, with this, and uh, it's it, yeah, one sec. Um, Hoffman, uh, returning to his core problem with the personal token model, ho- uh, model Hoffman reemphasized that the assurances and utility that come, uh, with some of these tokens don't exist for, uh, with, with certain kinds of tokens don't exist for like these personal tokens. How risky this investment is, is completely defined by the individual in his disclaimer. He's and he's talking about one of the guys who's token himself, uh, this guy named Kerman, In his disclaimer, he says, this is a highly risky investment and that you could lose all your money, which is a terrible thing to say because with personal tokens, the issuer is in complete control over exactly how risky the investment actually is. It's largely up to them whether there are risks or not, which is like a kind of illegal securities trading that I don't think we've ever – anyone's ever done. Um, Like it's this this fascinating new con where you're literally – the the per, you're you're doing securities trading, but instead of it being over a company, it's just you. And technically, there's no consequences if you just take the money and run. Like I don't know what kind of contract. Like you couldn't have a contract that says like you could say there that you're obligated to pay out your future earnings, but you couldn't have to work. Like that's not enforceable. You can't like contractually obligate someone to to it, like work like you're allowed to quit a job. I mean, I guess you could put penalties in it, but I I like none of the current ones have any. Kind I mean, of
6: penalties or they could like go I'm to sure jail for evolve. the other option is is that they could go to jail for fraud if they try to sure. not if they try to not follow through on the investment. If you say like, yeah, I I invested in you and you said that you would do these things, you didn't do them, now you can go to prison. That is but the other no, yeah. thing.
4: And I think that'll, at some point, like, there will be scams and some of that will come in. But, like, none of these current ones, none of them are saying, I, here's my specific, I'm going to make this specific. It's not like, like, if you, inv- like, like with a Patreon, right, you're, you're paying a little bit at a time on an ongoing basis for a very clear product, generally. Yeah. And this is, so far, these aren't that. They're just like, I'm going to try to do something that makes money. And if it does, you get a cut of it. And that's. It's so much like there's nothing that's stopping Mass from saying like, hey, my my and my attempt didn't work, uh, so we're done. No, no money for anybody like that. Uh, and I, I, you're not. There's no accounting requirements. There's no. There's a bunch of ways in which it's fucked except, up from a financial
6: side. Except it's not. It's not his. It, it's not. It's not. You're not investing in his business. You're investing in him. So even yeah. if, even if even if he takes another job, they're still it seems to be contractually contractually obligated to still get that 15% of his income.
4: Yes, and I think that's, that's the area in which I think it would be abusive for the person being tokenized because most people aren't gonna, like most people don't make that much money. So they raise, someone manages to like raise five or 10 grand and then just winds up for years giving a cut of their income that winds up being more than they got initially to a bunch of, like it's almost like a, like a payday loan that you've got yeah, yeah. on the blockchain
10: <laughs> like, yeah it's... you know okay so this is the thing, this is the thing I'm thinking about because so th- there's I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show but there's a thing in China where it, they've been kind of cracking down on it now for but you know, starting in, like 2019 like literally every single app like had a uh, like had a payday loan thing in it so like like your flashlight app would have a, would would offer you a payday loan and it was yeah. basically it was yeah it was they, they were there was originally tied in with like people who buy um, you know, it was originally tied in with like like uh, the, the 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 services that let you order like their version of Amazon, for example, with like, <sighs> oh, hey, we'll give you a loan yeah. so you can buy this, so you can order fried chicken. And I was always wondering when this would come to the US. And I think it might never hope. I mean, hopefully it never does. And I think it might not just because of how like powerful our petty loan industry is. But it's like we've we've now invented it 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 seems like it's gonna happen, but like dumber. <laughs> Like, our our version of it is like this thing which is just you know it's oh what what if what if payday loans but on the blockchain except you know I, mean, I, I, I guess this is the other thing you know that, that we've, we've been getting at is is that the difference between this being a payday loan and this being you scammed a bunch of people is what the enforcement mechanism looks like and you know th- this 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 comes back to some other things I think are interesting about this one is that you know so the whole the nft grift right is 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 based on convincing people that there's value in ownership right they're like ownership itself has inherently has value yeah and yeah but but this this is not that this is this is you know this is going back to no your value value is built on labor right well yeah
6: it's like sort of labor labor and like like personhood like like you as a personal brand is yeah is the thing that they're trying to get at but but the
10: the thing the thing that's missing here though is that in in order for like you know in in order for like labor to produce value right in, in in this way there has to be like there has to be a way for you to force them to pay you like you need you need coercion for it and if there's no coercion then you know you just take a bunch of money and leave and and that, that, I think, is, like, this, this is going to be the battle over, like, if, if this becomes a thing, it's going to be, you know, the, the the people who buy these things are going to wind up, like, trying to, you know, I, I think they're going to be the ones who try to push a regulation because they're going to, you know, they're going to go in, they're going to be, I want to get my money back. And that could end really, really, really badly,
4: right? Yeah. Like, if, you know. I mean, it, yeah, it probably will. I, I like I don't know how f- popular I think this will be cuz I think that Yeah, I hope it dies. This is a it, maybe if there'd never oh, been like God. Patreon or something, but the actual use case of this seems to already be well served by the existing capitalist infrastructure. Like yeah. people I think more people want it back a creator's Patreon than they want to like own pieces of a person's time and earning potential. Like I that that seems like a more niche and weird desire to people than just like, oh yeah, these guys make a video I like every week, so I'll throw them three dollars. Well, I
10: think I think the difference though is that Patreon money gets you money from normal people. This gets you money from like tech bros, and that yeah, know, that, that's that, always been that what the is NFTs yes. are yeah, it's it's a it, grift designed to. <laughs> yeah. And that's people.
4: I, I want to dive back into this Atlantic article because it's so bad in such a comprehensive way that I think it deserves analysis. That's what what, what put a pin in what you said. But I want to start with like how the person writing this, this Rex motherfucker, like <laughs> his his concept of the, the history of the Internet, um, because it's completely wrong. Quote. We're on the precipice of the third era of the web. The web's first era was about information flowing freely. Think Google giving you access to the world's knowledge. Most of us were passive consumers in this era. The second era was the social web, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. People began to create their own content, and that content became the lifeblood of the big platforms. We became active participants, but the platforms devoured all the profits. The promise of the internet was to erase the gatekeepers. Instead of waiting for a record label to sign you, you could share your music on Spotify. Instead of asking a publication to share your words, you could tweet. Instead of being tapped by a studio exec, you could become a YouTuber. But what happened is that these platforms became the new gatekeepers. The third era of the web is about writing the ship. Social capital becomes economic capital. Value no longer accumulates to brokers and intermediaries. (laughs) That's... Number 1 completely wrong. For one thing, yeah. <laughs> the first era of the internet, I would say was about the idea that information should flow freely, and Google came in like a decade or more into that period. Yes, like yes. I had been on the internet 5 years before Google hopped into that shit. And Google was actually the start of of the end of that period. Um and it's it's the idea that like the social web was people creating their own content. Most of the social web's initial capital and like all of its initial money came from taking content that people were being paid to make on legacy platforms that had existed before social media, taking that content, putting it on social media, and then monetizing that without paying money back to the people who had made the content. The money in social media did not initially come from people making their own content in the way that they mean it. Like yeah, you at College Humor or whatever, uh, uh, were making your own content and sharing it on social media. But you'd been doing that before social media. Social media just actually made it less profitable eventually. Like the way he summarizes this is so wrong because C- what the social web actually did. And the other thing I'd argue is that the first era of the internet, the like early days when things are happening on like forums and and weird little Angel Fire websites and like even MySpace. Um, which I think is kind of, my space kind of straddles the first and, and second eras. Uh that was fu- fundamentally much more an era of people creating their own content. Because the the lifeblood of uh, uh social media today isn't people really making their own content. It's people reacting to content that other people made. Um and again, it just shows the fact that he's he's summarizing it this way in a way that I think is so wrong uh and inaccurate to how things actually developed uh is is characteristic of his attitude towards this stuff where he's kind of seeing the only real meaningful evolutions in, in, in the internet through the corporations that monetized it, Um, which is just telling of like how this guy actually sees the way the internet has developed. And you will not be surprised to know uh, this motherfucker is an investor at index ventures. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he's, he's a guy whose business is capitalizing things. Um, and so that's the only way he sees the development of the internet, well, even though that's not the accurate way of looking at how the internet evolved.
10: And I think I think that there's one more really important thing that he leaves mm-hmm. out here, which is that because you know like we're talking oh this is the third age of the internet, like no the third day of the internet started like I don't know the mid to early mid
4: 2010s when yeah. I would say when Gamergate hit is when I would I would yeah I mean it's gonna be a little off. It de- way, It depends what you. It depends what you mean by age. So
10: one of my friends works in advertising, and he was talking about this where you know we can we can talk about like like GamerGate and the sort of fascist mobs, but there was something else happening back end, which was the Internet of Things stuff. And the Internet of Things stuff like you know like nobody it's kind of a I don't know like I think we mostly think about it as like it's kind of a joke or it's like it just sucks, but. Really, what it was was that 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 was the period in which people figured out that the the thing the the actual money to be made on the internet was from selling people's personal information. Yeah, and that and the and, and the internet of things like just dramatic, like just indescribably increased the amount of data that you could extract from people. Yeah, and that that was that's the actual that was the actual change of like like that that that's 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 the thirty of the internet and that that era of the internet will last basically forever until we destroy it, which is that you know it. The, the 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 commodity is just all of all of the information about who you are, where you go, like what you buy, who you talk to, mm-hmm. that just being sold off to to advertisers is you know the thing that he's very very carefully not talking about, and instead focusing on oh it was users yeah. creating content and it's like no they it, the internet's like just they 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 sold spying on the entire world.
4: Yeah, and it, I I think there's there's two good ways to di- to divide the internet into ages, and the ages would be slightly different each way. One is kind of how you're doing it is it, the way in which it was monetized, right? That's yeah. that's that's one way to, and and then if that's the case, it's going to start with it was not at all. It was an entirely public project, and everybody on it was on it through like a university, and like people did not pay to access it. Other than that, you had to be at an institution or a university, and then like. We get to uh, the kind of the dot the era before the dot com boom and of the dot com boom and then like the early pre social internet stuff like something awful and like having uh, uh, stumbled upon and and whatnot and like those sending traffic to sites like where I used to work cracked and um and then kind of the social media which is the start of as you said like the data being monet monetized like individuals data being the thing either that's being directly monetized or it's being used to deliver like targeted ads to you. Um, and then there's like, if you think about it in terms of content, it's it starts like I, for the first era wouldn't even involve Google because it would be like the start of Usenet up to eternal September in 1993, and then, you know, on from there. Um, but either way, this guy doesn't like it, everything he says about the history of the internet is is dumb
6: it's just a very simplified version and you don't actually look at like the interlocking systems. Um, cause I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know why he describes it this way because it is, it is like, it's accurate if you squint and don't think about it. Yeah. Um, but it's weird. But- cause like this article is like, it's for tech bros. So I, I don't yes. know why he describes it this way because I feel like he could describe it a lot more accurately. Um, if he, if he wanted to,
10: well, it's something I'm going to get into. I'm going to say this probably like twice this episode. I'm going to get into the neoliberalism episodes that I'm writing. But the one of, one of the key features of neoliberalism is that they lie. Is that the the neoliberals have to have two versions of what they believe. They have the version that they tell everyone else, which is completely a lie and is not what they believe at all. And then it has they have the version that they tell to each other, which is what they actually believe. And they they completely they contradict each other completely. They mostly believe thing. Everything they say in public is just a complete lie and that i think that's what he's doing here which is that this that like that history of the internet is the one you sell to public consumption yes because yeah that that's 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 the lie you tell people to take money from them and then he has a thing that he believes but which he will not ever tell you because you know if 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 he told you what like he actually wanted to
4: do you would run screaming from the room and And i I think this is the the you can you can read between what he wants you to believe i think is made very clear by how he divides, by the fact that when he starts like dividing up the ages of the Internet, he says the first one is the time in which people wanted information to be free. And what he's kind of saying by doing that is saying like that was an infant stage of the Internet. And obviously the natural evolution of the Internet is for every single thing on it to become monetized. And yeah. because I also believe the Internet should be every aspect of our lives, like this is a megaverse guy or a metaverse guy, like I think the Internet should – should be involved in every aspect of life. That means every aspect of life should be financialized. Um, and that's f- extremely radical, but it does not sound that way when you describe it that way. Yep. People's heads go over it, but like what he's saying is deeply radical. And I think also like, again, you want to talk about like the first, the and not just the early age, like because the, the first people who kind of built the backbone of the internet were mostly like very radically anti- Uh, uh, capitalizing on like there was this idea that like it absolutely should be as free as possible. Like Steve Wozniak, the guy who uh, functionally invented the personal computer had a background like as a phone freaker, like literally robbing phone companies to get like free phone calls and stuff like these, like most of the early internet pioneers were like some kind of criminal. Um, and the early ages of like internet content being monetized mostly started with people doing shit for free like that was how the people who made money on it that's how all of my bosses and that's how fucking I got started was like you would just start making shit and you would put it out for free and eventually like that would get enough traffic that you you'd you'd you you'd draw ads to you and whatnot and you'd make money but it was always like all of the content that that made the internet and all of the content creators who are huge now mostly started um, doing so, – like even it was just like throwing up videos on YouTube, right, or like going on – and I, that's that's less the case with the Zoomers now because a lot of them got started on at, uh, things like, like Twitch where the idea is to from the beginning be trying to monetize yourself. And while you're like building a brand, you're constantly monetized. But that's a really recent change. And I actually yeah. – I find it kind of unsettling because that was – I don't know. It, it's a mix because I'm certainly not of the – I'm not of, of the of the mind that, like, if someone is asking you to do work, you should be getting paid for it. But if you are trying to if you are trying to, like, build a life as a creator, the best way to do that creatively is to just make the things that you think are cool and then make like if if other people like it, you make money, like better things get made than that. that yeah, way. like that. I, that is the way the best art gets
6: made. I I, th- I think there's a few things going on here. Because, like, the way – I think, like, I think actually the reason why he frames it this way is because he's trying to get back to his idea of freedom, right? He describes, like, the golden age of the internet being information f- flowing freely. He thinks that the blockchain is the new version of that. So that's why he's framing it in this way. The second thing is in terms of, like, artists and creators. Um if you think about like yeah like when, like the when the early age of what what he calls like this of, of what we we kind of all been referring to as like the second era when like with, uh, era of like when social media and like content creation like sites are a thing let's like just use YouTube as an example, um because there was a low saturation in content it was easier for someone to rise up and gain a platform let's say someone like Bo Burnham right who started as just a kid and now is like a very popular comedian yeah um but then YouTube. Instead of backing creators like that, um, which they did a little bit, but they did not as much. They instead started uh, a, a, a like the the thing that happened was like uh, YouTube really incentivizing sharing like late night content and sharing like. Like TV, like clips of TV shows, and like using, like doing using legacy media on their platform, and that's the things they really backed. That's the things they really pushed into your feed. It's like Tonight Show clips. Um, so a lot of those original original content creators kind of got left behind, and now are, are now like just their own are running on their own personal brands. Some of them use Patreon, for example. But it's also it's impossible to do this now because there's an oversaturation of content. The only thing that's done this recently is TikTok because it was a brand new platform. There was again a, yeah. new, a new a new opportunity. For a lot of kids to gain to gain a lot of audiences really quickly. I mean, I just I
4: to, to based on what you're saying, I think that like TikTok is the closest to how c- cool shit happened on the internet yes. before everything got because it because it is like you're not starting from a like everyone starts I guess knowing you could make money, but that was the same way the old you start because you are like you're doing a thing, yeah, and if that thing takes off, then there's ways to monetize and like that. Yeah, and, and, I think that's why probably why it's, part of why it's so popular.
6: Generally growth on TikTok is pretty uh it's pretty organic. It's not yeah. it's not it's not boosted by big brands uh the same way you know stuff like uh YouTube is. And now it's probably going to be edging in that direction, but it's it's sure. it's, it's not it's, it's not there yet. So and his argument in this is to get back to just being like a small content creator, getting your stuff seen. His solution to this problem of like YouTube and stuff backing like these large like light night shows and backing like these large like corporately funded things, his solution is that if you're a small if you're a small content creator, you should sell yourself as an asset yeah. to other people on the internet, right? So because like his his whole idea is that he wants to get rid of the gatekeepers of the internet and go back to how the internet was, but his solution for doing that is just by selling you as a person brand to other people on the internet who are like tech bro investors. So yeah. he, th- that's why it's framed this specific way. So I think when we're all, tr- we're all like talking about like why does he describe it this way, what's all this weird stuff going on, it's because that's how he's rationalized it in his brain is for how what he thinks being a free artist is, and he thinks this is going to be the new method to get there.
10: There's another important sort of macro thing to think about this year, which is that the underlying basis of all of this, right, is the assumption that everyone is an entrepreneur, is that, you know, like every, everyone is doing all of their stuff at all times because they want, you know, in, in order to be a business owner. And this has been like, you know, th- this th- this has been the great ideological victory of the right in the last 50 years is that they convinced everyone that like every single person is, you know, like you're, I mean, it's, it's not even temporary embarrassed millionaire syndrome. It's like even people who like are working jobs, right? like working wage labor jobs think of themselves as, you know, content creators and a content creator, you know, is, is, is a small business owner. And this has an immensely coercive, well, I'll be coercive too, but corrosive effect on, you know, anyone working together to do something because, you know, Oh, you're not, you're not, you're not a worker. You're just like, you're a content creator. You're, you know, you're a small business owner. You're like, you know, you, you what, and, and, and that's, you know, this, this is a very long running, thing that a bunch of incredibly powerful people have been trying to do really since, like, I mean, arguably, like, the 30s, but the 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 complete success of that and the way that, you know, they're, they're, they're selling exactly the same thing that they were selling in, like, the 80s, but now it's this, like, you know, you're trying to get people to do it to themselves, and also they throw all of this, like, sort of te- nonsense tech jargon at you to get you to sort of, like, stop looking at the fact that this is just sort of... You know, this is this is this is just the the new, even worse version of everyone being a worker who thinks that they're like, you know, also going to be a small business owner someday.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything else really to say about it other than this. But like, I mean, this was a, a good amount to say. I just think this is so. I think it's such an example of kind of the way in which the worst people in the world are trying to steer the internet um, and yeah. by steering the internet steer the soul of like the human race um, like this is a vision of the future this guy's sharing and this article is not isn't isn't positioning itself as radical but includes some like deeply radical ideas about how the world should go and by the way I should also note that he's also just like blatantly wrong every time he brings up a number um, like he talk, he, he points out in this article that 46 million Americans own cryptocurrency. The real number is more likely about 21 million, kind of at, at most, like by every credible, I have no idea where he's getting 46 million Americans own cryptocurrency. And again, this, the stat just came out. And that's part of his argument is that like, obviously people love the blockchain and these tokens and like, this is, this is inevitably going to get more and more popular, um, and when again the reality is that every real thing that's happening on the on the blockchain is pretty much versions of a security scam that the government has just announced they're going to finally start regulating but yeah i want to so the 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 stat the study that just came out today was that uh analysis of 6.1 million trades of like 4.7 million nfts it shows that the top 10% of traders were responsible for 97% of trading um which again is more evidence that all that's happening is people boosting prices also the average the vast majority like more than 90% of nft sales are for less than $200 some of them are for just pennies like what the the stuff that you're hearing about is all ridiculous uh outliers and it's outliers specifically because people are pumping stuff up in order to try to con someone um and that's the whole basis of this guy's the structural argument the reason he, that he's attempting to argue that like there's actually desire here and that this is in fact the future of the internet is based entirely upon like numbers that are either bad or he's or he's deliberately using he's deliberately lying about the numbers because there is no credible number I, evidence i've ever heard that 46 million americans currently own cryptocurrency or even have ever owned cryptocurrency
6: yeah, and I think um, the other kind of nail in the coffin for this idea and why I don't think it's going to catch on the same way these guys think it think it does, and this is something he acknowledges in the article, is like not a lot of people know how the stock exchange works, like very mm-hmm. like he 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 says I think it's like I don't know like he I I forget the what number he says, but um but he, he says like not not tons of people actually use or know what the stock stock exchange is, um and. The reason why Patreon was so successful and why it's so useful for content creators is because it's a very intuitive system. It's very clear how it works. It's clear what you're doing. There's no really questions about where your money's going or what's happening. This I don't think this is ever I don't think this whole personal investment thing is ever going to actually go off because people don't understand what the blockchain is and it's too much work to explain it to them. Um yep. And just because of how much work it is to wrap your mind around, like, so where is my money going? What do I have to set up? How does that work? That's way too much of a headache. Because in order for this to actually work, you need to, this to break out of the tech bro bubble, or else this is just going to be this small. Tech bro thing of people handing over the same one hundred dollars to all their friends in a circle, yeah. um, which is what it is currently. And I, in order to break out of that circle, they need to get you know your grandmother to to learn what crypto is and how blockchains work, and that's not going to yeah. happen. Um, so I think that is the one other nail in the coffin for this type of idea. Is like Patreon is easy. Patreon makes sense. This thing it is not nearly as intuitive for supporting a YouTuber you like. Yeah.
4: Oh, okay, cool. I actually found evidence on where that 46 million Americans number comes from. Yeah, so basically, number one, I found like a a fucking crypto news source pointing out that like when... Uh, people started tweeting that 46 million Americans, it's based on a study, which we'll talk about in a second, but like when people started tweeting about this, like the immediate response uh, in the Bitcoin subreddit was like, well, that's not fucking possible. Uh, Like one of the people in in the Bitcoin subreddit said, sounds very high. I don't know a single person who owns it. And this says (laughs) one in six or seven people own it. (laughs) Yeah, and and it comes from a study conducted in January by the New York Digital Investment Group uh surveying a thousand participants with incomes over fifty thousand dollars. So uh, that uh. that seems valid.
10: Wait, they, they just said it's over fifty this okay. This method uh,
4: Yeah. This this method You'll get a few like pew released a studies suggesting that like 16% of Americans have used cryptocurrency at some point. And like all of what's coming out is kind of sketchy. All of the data, there's like reasons to be kind of unsettled about it. But also like one of the things the Pew study showed is that the vast majority of Americans have heard of cryptocurrency uh, and most haven't used it. Like the vast majority have not chosen to get involved, yeah. like <laughs> however accurate you think this is. Like there's another article coming out that says, uh, that came out in, I guess, May of this year that su- said that's based on a Gemini study, uh, which is Gemini is a crypto exchange that over 50 million Americans are likely to buy crypto in the next year, um, which doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, like I, I just don't see. There's all sorts of like weird little studies commissioned by weird little groups, but it, it, it really doesn't. It seems like it's, it's, again, kind of part of the grift. Like I'm not seeing a lot of rigor in any of this. Um. Anyway, whatever. We've talked enough about this shit. I just, I think we all, as soon as we read the article, were so like appalled by it that well, we should probably talk about this for 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs>
3: just
2: being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
5: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced.
9: Bring
5: it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com/slash schedule release to learn more.
3: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people you can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.
10: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about how society is falling apart and about how to put it back together again. I'm your host, Christopher Wong, and today, and for the next few days, we're doing something a bit different. We're going to take a deep dive into some of the people who got us into the mess we're in today. Now, when we've talked about our enemies and it could happen here, we've mostly focused on fascism, and for good reason. But for the next few days, we're focusing on a different enemy. Though, don't worry, the Nazis will show up. That enemy is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the single most successful political movement of the 20th and 21st centuries. No other political movement in human history has directly controlled so much of the globe. It has outmaneuvered, outlasted, or simply destroyed every ideology that sought to oppose it, and has reigned virtually unchallenged for 50 years after it exploded onto the political scene in Chile. Their victory has been so total that even their erstwhile opponents have adopted its core principles. Margaret Thatcher famously bragged that her proudest accomplishment was creating Tony Blair, basking in the irony that neoliberalism would be implemented across the globe in large part by labor and socialist parties. Today, even erstwhile communist countries maintain so-called special economic zones, with the laws of neoliberalism are allowed to run rampant in exchange for GDP increases, and their communist supporters in the West have come to believe that capitalism is a far more powerful engine of economic development than the state planning advocated by their forebearers thus internalizing the greatest principle of neoliberalism, even as they claim to oppose it. All of this, of course, raises two questions. What actually is neoliberalism, and how did it come to rule the world? Today, we're going to try to answer the first question by looking back at the original neoliberals and examining what they believed, because it's not what you think. There are many places you can begin the story of neoliberalism. I'm choosing to start in France in 1938, now, the nineteen thirties are a bad time to be a free trade market liberal. And just to clear this up early, liberal in the European context, which is where a lot of the beginning of the story takes place, does not mean the same thing as it does in the American context. European liberalism up to this point is about free trade, markets, individual liberty and rights, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but it's anti-state interference. To be somewhat reductive, it's kind of closer to what conservatism is in the US, but it's not identical. So Bear that in mind as the story goes on. The 1930s saw the rise of fascism, social democracy, and communism, each with its own form of government spending and economic planning, which liberals absolutely detested. Now, the 1920s and 30s had been full of liberals gathering to try to figure out what to do next. And in 1937, Walter Lippmann, an American writer who would become most famous for inventing the term Cold War, wrote a book called An Inquiry into the Principles of the Good Society, which argue that totalitarianism is a product of not having individual private property, and that the state needs to be limited to administering justice and not, you know, giving people things that they need. And so a lot of liberals read this and go, oh, cool, we should organize a conference to talk about this book and our ideas. And the product is the 1938 Lippmann Colloquium. Now, a bunch of extremely important neoliberals show up at this conference, including one Friedrich August von Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Wilhelm Röpke and Alexander Rustow, And they start talking about the need for a new kind of liberalism to oppose communism, Keynesianism, fascism, and what they call Manchester laissez-faire liberalism, in which the state didn't intervene at all in political life and let the economy run on autopilot. Now, the German sociologist Alexander Rustow, who we're going to talk about more in a second, comes up with the term neoliberalism to define the new set of principles that they're trying to develop and they think the new liberalism should prioritize the price mechanism free enterprise the system of competition and importantly a strong and impartial state now this is the origin of neoliberalism as a term and it's important to understand two things from the outset because the neoliberals are going to spend the next 50 years lying about this one neoliberalism favors a strong state to make the market work and two neoliberalism is not the same thing as classical liberalism Now, neoliberals essentially invented the whole I'm a classical liberal thing in the 50s, but if you read the original stuff that they wrote, if you you go back to 1940s, if you go back to 1930s and you read what they write, the neoliberals are extremely clear that they are not classical liberals and that, in fact, their political project is different from the 20th century and 19th century liberal project in which the state is supposed to be a night watchman and not actually interfere in the markets at all. The neoliberals originally, before they you know start lying about their actual origins, reject this principle and come to believe that, in fact, a strong state is necessary to ensure that markets work. So now you have neoliberalism as a thing, but nothing really happens much until after World War II, because during World War II, almost everyone is just doing state economic planning, and so you know, all of these people rambling off to the side about how, oh, the the market is the most efficient way to plan a system. Nobody listens to them because they're fighting a war and the way you fight wars is doing state planning. And after World War II, the situation for neoliberals is even worse because having, you know, gone through the experience of entire societies turning their entire economies and systems into planning agencies in order to, you know, mobilize a total war effort, people after the war, come back and go, oh, hey, we can do this to other parts of the economy. So this means that everyone, and this is not just the communist states, this is, you know, this is Britain is doing Keynesianism, they're doing planning, they're doing state uh, welfare programs, and the New Deal is spreading also across the globe. Now, in response to all of this, Hayek and his allies do two things. The first is found the Chicago School of Economics, and the second is to assemble the avengers of taking food from children, the Montpelion Society. The Montpelion Society is the central neoliberal institution, which is a weird thing because in a lot of ways, it's essentially just a closeted debate society intended to allow neoliberals to work out their political principles behind closed doors. Now, at this first meeting in 1947, a lot of the people from the Littman Colloquium are there, But unfortunately, some of the French members of the colloquium and some of the people from Germany had uh, collaborated with the Nazis. So they were out. And this meant that Hayek had to find new people to bring in. And the Montpellier Society's first meeting is the first time you actually have all three major schools of neoliberal thought in the same place at the same time arguing with each other. And they can't agree on shit. The only thing they can actually agree on is to look into more stuff. And to, to get a sense of how far away from modern neoliberalism the arguments that are being had at the Montpellier Society are, the Montpellier Society has only ever once actually released a single statement stating its principles. And this statement was the only thing that could be agreed on at the first meeting of the Montpellier Society. And I'm just going to read it. This is what they agreed to research. One. The analysis and explanation of the present crisis so as to reflect its essential moral and economic origins. 2. The redefinition of the state's function so as to distinguish more clearly between the totalitarian and liberal order. 3. Methods of reestablishing the rule of law and assuring its development so that individuals and groups are not in a position to encroach upon the freedom of others and private property rights are not allowed to become a basis of predatory power. 4 the possibility of establishing minimum standards by means not inimical to initiative and the functioning of the market. Five, methods of combating the misuse of history for the furtherance of creeds hostile to liberty. Six, the problem of creating an international order conductive to safeguarding of peace and liberty and permitting the establishment of harmonious international economic relations. You know, just by looking at this, you you can immediately see signs of how far things are going to move. I mean, you know, one of one of the things that they're talking about is again, they're, they're trying to research whether or not it's possible to just give people things without the market, and it's, it's it's not just the sort of left quote unquote wing of the neoliberals who are arguing about this. Hayek, in in probably his most famous book, The Road to Serfdom, I mean, explicitly says, yeah, you should just give people food and housing and stuff outside of the market, and you know, to, like today, if literally anyone who says this will be accused of socialism. This is the neoliberal, this is, you know, a large part of the neoliberal position in, in 1947. Now, I've mentioned briefly that there are three schools of neoliberalism, and we're going to spend some time looking at them because people have a tendency to look at neoliberalism and assume that, oh, it's, it's, it's just the Chicago School of Economics, you know, which is the, the neoclassical school. school's most famous member is Milton Friedman. And it's true that, that the Chicago School are neoliberals, but, and, and this is critical there's other intellectual schools involved in here, and it's not just it's not just economists. Neoliberalism from the beginning is a multidisciplinary international project. You have lawyers, you have political scientists, you have journalists, you have philosophers, you have anthropologists, and the product of this is something, is an ideology and a philosophy that is much deeper, much richer, and much more dangerous than just Chicago school alone. The second of the major schools is the Austrian school, which is led by Ludwig von Mises and Hayek. And maybe most importantly, but least well-known, the third school that we're actually going to be talking about today is the German liberals, led by Alexander Rustow, who, again, invented deterministic liberalism, and Wilhelm Röpke, who almost no one has ever heard of but are incredibly important. And I'm gonna I'm gonna insert a disclaimer here before I get yelled at by by nerds. Yes, I'm aware of the Public Choice theorists at the Virginia School. I am also aware of that a group of the neoliberals who's called the Geneva School, even though they're just regular order liberals. And there's also the Rump of the Neo Institutionalists. Um, I don't care about them because they're not <laughs> relevant to this story. Please do not yell at me on Twitter. Now, these people have wildly divergent beliefs, and so I'm gonna do my best to do one sentence summaries. <laughs> Of what these people believe. So, the Chicago School of Neoclassical Economics. Humans are all knowing, calculating gods, rationally optimizing their behavior to get the most out of every single human interaction they engage in to maximize the utility, the product of this infinite freedom to choose economic equilibrium. The Austrian School. Humans are pig-ignorant fucks who know literally nothing and therefore must be made to bow down to the ever-changing disequilibrium of the market, which is the only thing that can actually process information. Order liberalism. The markets won't create or balance itself because these uncultured proletarian swine keep asking for raises instead of focusing on the magic of the family, so we have to use the state and laws to force people and companies to do competition. And these are obviously somewhat comical summaries of it, but these are very, very different conceptions of what it is to be a human, of whether the market occurs naturally or not, of what the market actually is. Is it a product? Is, is is it an object in and of itself? Is it a product? Is it just an inevitable product of humans doing whatever humans do? And this is part of the reason why it's all, it was almost impossible to get the original neoliberal to agree on anything. But This is actually one of the strengths of the neoliberal project. The project only works because it uses the products of all three branches. You have neoclassical attacks on the welfare state, Austrian attacks on central planning, and order liberal theories of the state, and sort of cultural and non-economic nature of markets. And, you know, when one school essentially fails as an explanation for something, they can jump to another school. And this gives them a very wide range of ability to move between Crises and move between people attacking any of the individual schools because they can simply pull out another set of theories. So, I'm going to talk a little bit more about each of the schools. And we're going to start with the Chicago School because, again, it's the most famous. And because I, oh, I think there's, a, there's another very interesting story here into how the Chicago School changed from its origins. So, one of the people who was supposed to be a founding member of the Chicago School was a man named Henry Simmons. And Simmons is unlike the rest of the Chicago school because he actually believes in things. So I'm I'm going to read a couple of quotes from him. Thus, the great enemy of democracy is monopoly in all its forms. Gigantic corporate trade associations and other agencies for price control, trade unions, or in general, organization and concentration of power within functional classes. Um, Here's another one. A monopolist is an implicit thief because his possession of market power leads to the exchange of commodities at prices that do not reflect underlying social scarcities. And you know, you you can see this sort of one of one of the classic neoliberal arguments, which is that okay, so you have you you have the market, the market is efficient, and trade unions get in the way of the market because they're a monopoly. But Simmons has what. Kind of looks like a uh, from our perspective a left wing critique of, of monopolies, which is yeah okay giant corporate monopolies are thieves because they 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 use their market power to to rob people by charging higher prices, and it, it's it's I genuinely can't say how differently things would have gone if Simmons had actually been around to see the Chicago's go through because he commits suicide in 1946, and unlike. Every single other person who was going to be involved with the Chicago School from the beginning until now, Simmons had a genuine commitment to democracy and anti-monopoly principles. But unfortunately, he's, he dies in 1946, and by the by, the Chicago School is really up and running in the 50s. Almost everyone involved in it is overtly pro-monopoly, pro-cooperation, and are you know they, they set up an antitrust school. But the thing that the antitrust school is arguing is that monopolies are actually essentially impossible because competition will just take care of everything and if you try to stop monopolies from happening it will interfere in the economy now this is this is the line that Milton Friedman takes and it's also the line of the Volcker fund who are a sort of I guess you could call them a charitable organization but it's basically a a, a billionaire slush funds that funds the school and they'd had real fights with Simmons because Simmons is like well okay monopolies are bad and Volcker is like well we're a monopoly so, you guys need to actually work for us. And by the time Friedman essentially takes over the Chicago School and uh, Knight take it over, they're not just intellectual mercenaries. They're extremely proud of the fact that they are, in fact, pure intellectual mercenary hacks with absolutely dogshit economics. If you've ever read just a, or, you know, if you've ever been forced to take an economics class, you took microeconomics, that's basically just what the Chicago School believes. It's everyone's a rational actor. Every every human being spends all of their time trying to calculate the maximum utility of anything that they do. Everything is a market. Everything functions by supply and demand. Markets are perfectly efficient if you just let them alone and don't interfere with them. Uh, everything the state does interferes with the markets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This, is, this is the thing that is sort of classically understood to be neoliberalism's core content. But it's extremely important to understand that these are not the only neoliberals. And in fact, not only are these not the only neoliberals, this set of political principles to a large extent is not what the neoliberals actually believe. This kind of stuff is essentially what they feed the roots: Small states, taxes bad, regulation bad. Everything is a market and has always been a market and all human interactions will inevitably produce markets. But to understand what neoliberals actually believe, we need to talk about the order liberals. Now, the the two most important order liberals are Wilhelm Röpke and W. W. Rousseau, who were both exiles during the Nazi regime. Now, a lot of the other order liberals who uh stayed in Nazi Germany collaborated with the Nazi regime, which is something that's kind of just overlooked and brushed to the side when people write about them. But Röpke and Rousseau's status as people who, you know, fled the Nazis gives them a kind of social cachet that their colleagues don't have and they become extremely important. Now, in some ways, the order liberals could be considered the left wing of, of the neoliberals. They are significantly less harsh on the welfare state than other forms of neoliberalism, and this is in large part because the order liberals are the first neoliberals to ever actually hold any power. And I, I think people, most people, tend to think that the first time neoliberalism was ever implemented was Chile, but that's not really true. The order liberals are actually very powerful in in nineteen fifties Germany. Now. The problem they face is that the left is powerful enough in 1950s Germany that they cannot actually just completely eliminate the welfare state. So their solution is to create this thing called the social market. And the order liberals get accused of like being crypto socialists by a lot of the other neoliberals, but that's not really what's going on. The very important thing about the order liberals is that unlike the Chicago school, they're not economists. Both Ropke and Rostow are social scientists, Rusto is a, a sociologist, and they argue that the state and the market alone cannot maintain market society because market society produces dislocation, you know, it produces atomization, it destroys social cohesion. And this means that you need a social, political, and sort of cultural framework to maintain it. And their major focus is on providing stability and security for the working class, and a new sense of sort of identity and cultural cohesion, because I think if the working class is essentially left to itself, it will create massification, cultural decay, and eventually the working class will turn into the proletariat, and that will give you either, either communism or fascism. The order liberals believe that there's 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 a kind of natural hierarchical order that they're trying to preserve, and that this is essentially what ordo means. It, it means literally order, which Accords with the essence of humans. This means an order in which proportion, measure, and balance exist. Now, they have a few ways that they're going to do this. Robkay is obsessed with something called structural policy. And structural policy is basically the argument that the conditions for markets have to be specifically created. And again, they're not just economic positions, they're social conditions. And this is fused with Rousseau's vital politique which is essentially about the, the, the power of anthropological and human aspects of culture and politics sort of beyond the forces of production that they think are vital to sort of the functioning of society. And part of what they're doing here is that they want to give some people a cultural thing to focus on so they stop talking about like wages and welfare and who owns production. But the combination of, of vital politic and structural policy gets you order liberalism. So nominally they focus on individuals, but really what they're focusing on as the family, as this "quote unquote" decentralized engine of economic capitalism, with small businesses and hopefully small family farms as a sort of apolitical social support base for capitalism, which they're 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 going to promote and set against the radicalism of the sort of industrial proletariat. And th- this this sort of middle class that they're aspiring to build is extremely important for a number of reasons. Partially as a way to diffuse working class tension, partially as a way to sort of offers workers something to aspire to, and partly as a way to fuse the sort of traditional natural hierarchy with conceptions of meritocracy. Now, Ropke in particular also begins to look for systems outside of just the democratic state to sort of create this legal apparatus that the neoliberals want to use to impose markets. And this is extremely important because a lot of Where neoliberalism winds up coming from is not from national governments, it's from this sort of international bureaucracy. It's from the IMF, it's from the World Bank, it's from the World Trade Organization. And those groups are controlled by by neoliberal lawyers. And Robke is the person who essentially first has this idea. Now, The goal of using these international legal institutions as a way of creating the laws to sort of enforce neoliberalism is using it as a way to sort of get around democracy. And I'm going to read this quote from Roke because, oh boy, does he absolutely not believe in freedom and democracy in the way that uh, he and everyone else talks about publicly. It is possible that in my opinion of the strong state, I am even more fascist fascistist than you yourself, because I would indeed like to see all economic policy decisions concentrated in the hand of a fully independent and vigorous state weakened by no pluralist authorities of a corporatist kind. I see the strength of the state in the intensity, not extensiveness, of its economic policies. How the constitutional legal structure of such a state should be designed is a question in and of itself for which I have no patent receipt to offer. I share your... Opinion that the old formulas of parliamentary democracy have proven themselves useless. People must get used to the fact that there is also a presidential, authoritarian, even yes, horrible thing to say, dictatorial democracy. So what he's saying there is that he's 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 sending a letter to one of his friends and he's going, yeah, I'm I'm even more fascist than you are. I think that democracy is actually a threat to the market and that in order to avoid authoritarian democracy we should in fact concentrate all economic decision making power in a in in the hands of a narrow elite in a strong state which is you know the opposite of everything that neoliberals openly claim to be supporting but behind closed doors and we will get into more of this in a second this is what they actually believe now ropkey is somewhat unique among neoliberals in that he is racist by neoliberal standards he's just enormously incredibly racist so for example he, he's a a massive apartheid dude and again I, want to, I, I need to point this out roque is one of the thing is one of the most important neoliberals he's one of the founding members of the mompilio society although he gets kicked out for well he, he eventually leaves because of some uh, disputes he has with hayek but you know I, I'm, I'm gonna read some of the things that he says about south africa because they're horrible quote The South African Negro is not only a man of an utterly different race, but at the same time stems from a completely different type and level of civilization. He also calls ending apartheid, quote, national suicide. And, you know, so he starts saying this stuff and the other neoliberals are like, dude, what the fuck? So the neoliberal newspaper like he wrote for for 30 years was just like, what? And published a bunch of students going, stop this. This is you you cannot seriously be supporting apartheid like this. And his response, and the newspaper is called the NZZ, and his response is quote: "These NZZ neo-intellectuals will not be satisfied until they let a real cannibal speak." Now, K is one of his uh, friends, another MPS member named Honnold. So Hayek looks at K's support for apartheid and is like, "What the fuck? Like, no, absolutely not! Like, this is horrible. Why? Why are you doing this? You know, to to, to Hayek's credit, that this this is the extent of the credit I will give Hayek in this episode." is that he looks at just the, the open overt racism of Rope Kane is like no. And when when he does this, uh Roque's friend Hunald says that Hayek quote now advocates one man one vote in race mixing. Now, you can see a lot of things here about Roque that are extremely scary. And one of those things is that the the language that he's speaking, this uh uh the west is committing national suicide uh the clash of civilizations race war stuff you know this is this is essentially the the, the i mean the, literally the national suicide thing is what white nationalists say today and rope k is in a lot of ways a right nationalist he's just sort of a german one but what's what's really scary about rope k is that He's not sort of bound by by the sort of strictures of, of of a neoclassical neoclassical economist. So, for example, he won't propose that like the dating market, like like dating, should be a market, and that rich like men should be able to like I, I go on an app and like like every 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 single time a person gets into a relationship, it should just be entirely based on market exchange and stuff like that. Because you know he doesn't think like an economist. He thinks about cultural factors. And he thinks about sort of social factors. But he also, he's cracked the code for how neoliberalism is going to be implemented. The, the way you do neoliberalism is neoliberalism plus racism. And he realizes that you you need, a, you know, neoliberalism's actual sort of policies, right, will cause atomization, will cause social dislocation, will cause the, the existing social structures of society to sort of implode. And he realizes that in order to get this to work, you need you need a spiritual base. You need some kind of new thing. That you can use to, to 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 sort of bring all these people together, and he picks Catholicism, which doesn't work because, I mean, there's a number of reasons for this, but you know, partially it's too early, partially it's because he picks Catholicism, and not Evangelicalism. But this is how the neoliberals are eventually going to take power, by you know aligning themselves with the evangelicals who promise to solve the atomization they're creating with you know religion and family and the patriarchy, and he figures this out in like the 60s but it was just you know like 20 years before the rest of the neoliberals figured it out now there's the uh, he also okay has like a bunch of very similar stuff that he thinks about this about rhodesia but interestingly he has more support for his positions on rhodesia than he does for his positions on south africa and now i'm gonna uh, we're gonna jump back to chicago school we're gonna read some milton friedman stuff about rhodesia because dear god Quote, majority rule for Rhodesia today is a euphemism for a black minority government, which would almost surely mean both the eviction or exodus of most of the whites and also a drastically lower living level and opportunity for the black masses of Rhodesia. Uh, Here's another one where he's describing the system of one person, one vote. Quote, a system of highly weighted voting in which special interest have far greater role to play than does the general interest. You know, so that's his description of what democracy is. Uh, In contrast, he thinks the market economy is, quote, a system of effective proportional representation. Now, Friedman also thinks that, you know, so so there's there's a blockade, like an economic blockade of Rhodesia going on because they're Rhodesia and they are maybe the worst people ever. That's probably, only only a mild exaggeration. Yeah, it's just, you know, absolutely fanatical, like, white supremacist government and Friedman also calls the isolation of Rhodesia quote the suicide of the west and you know he's doing this on racial lines but he's also doing this along lines of this argument that democracy itself is actually bad and this is the place that he can express it because you know he can leverage racism to get away with it and I'm 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 going to read another Friedman quote because I I think it's it's important to understand what the neoliberals actually think about democracy. Quote, "This was sometimes admitted by members of Mount Pelion in public, but only when they felt that their program was in the sense. Let's be clear, I don't believe in democracy in one sense, you don't believe in democracy. Nobody believes in democracy." You will find it hard to find anybody who will say that if democracy is interpreted as majority rule. You will find it hard to find anybody who will say that 55% of the people believe the other 45% of the people should be shot. That's an appropriate exercise of democracy. What I believe is not a democracy, but an individual freedom in a society in which individuals cooperate with one another. So... He's he's making a sort of what's in some ways a kind of anarchist argument against democracy, which is that like, yeah, okay, so if if you interpret democracy as pre-majority rule, then a majority can just do a terrible thing to the minority. But, you know, what the neoliberals actually mean by this is that fifty-five uh, percent of the population could, for example, I don't know, take money from the rich small part of the of the population and distribute it around, and they think that is totalitarianism. And in order to stop that from happening, they are in fact absolutely and perfectly willing to just back dictatorships and and you know that's in in essence what they what they what they actually want is a state the sole function of which essentially is to ensure that nobody ever does this and you know if if you can do this inside of a democratic framework fine but if you can't well i don't know it's time for a coup we're going to turn to the to hayek and the austrians because hayek also is known as this sort of like as a libertarian, as this person who sort of believes in spontaneous order and like thinks that uh, I, you should, you should only have sort of small decentralized political institutions. Uh, and so we're going to watch Hayek quote a bunch of stuff from, and agree with a bunch of stuff from Carl Schmidt, which is again, incredible because Hayek elsewhere describes Schmidt as quote, uh, the Nazis chief jurist, which is, true. But here, here are some other things that Hayek has said about Carl Schmitt. Quote, The weakness of the government of an omnipotent democracy was very clearly seen by the extraordinary German student of politics, Carl Schmitt, who in the 1920s probably understood the character of the developing form of government better than most people. And, you know, Hayek believes a lot of the same things that Schmitt does. So, you know, one of them, the things that Schmitt is, like, big on is that liberalism and democracy are opposite things. And Hayek also believes this. And, okay, so, so I'm, I'm going to read I'm gonna read some Schmidt, and then I'm going to read some Hayek, and they're going to be saying the same thing. So here's Schmidt. Only a strong state can preserve and enhance a free market. Only a strong state can gener- generate genuine decentralization and bring about free and autonomous domains. Here's Hayek. If we proceed on the assumption that only the exercises of freedom that the majority will are important, we would be certain to create a stagnant society with all the characteristics of unfreedom. So what, what, what Hayek, yeah, Schmidt is saying that only a strong state can, can support a free market and do decentralization. Hayek is saying if you let a democracy exist uh, that has majority rule, uh, it will create unfreedom. Now, we, we will get into this more when we talk about like Chile, because, oh boy, is there some other shit that Hayek has to do with that. But, most neoliberals hate democracy no matter what they say in public. And, and this is the other important thing here. Neoliberals lie. They lie constantly. They lie to the point where sorting out their actual beliefs becomes almost impossible and even their intellectual enemies believe the lies that they tell. What most people think the neoliberals believe is that, you know, they want a small government and liberty in an unregulated market that will occur naturally through spontaneous order because it's human nature to want to truck and barter and rationally calculate things. And the neoliberals don't believe any of this. This is just what they tell to the rubes. What what they actually want is a large and powerful surveillance and legal state and a massive bureaucracy to enforce essentially pro-corporate policies at gunpoint. Um, I'm I'm going to read close out this episode by, by reading a, a list of things that Philip Morawski, is an economic historian who studies neoliberalism, whose work I've used a lot uh, for, for these episodes wrote about, the 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 sort of the, the sort of 11 principles of what neoliberals actually believe 1 free markets do not occur naturally they must be actively constructed through political organizing 2 the market is an information processor and the most efficient one possible more efficient than any government or any single human being could be truth can only be validated by the market 3 market society is and therefore should be the natural and inexorable state of humankind The political goal of neoliberals is not to destroy the state, but to take control of it, and to redefine its structure and function in order to create and maintain the market-friendly culture. 5. There is no contradiction between public politics, citizen, and private market entrepreneur-consumer, because the latter does and should eclipse the former. 6. The most important virtue, more important than justice or anything else, is freedom, defined negatively as freedom to choose— most importantly, defined as the freedom to acquiesce to the imperatives of the market. 7. Capital has a natural right to flow freely across national borders. 8. Inequality of resources, income, wealth, and even political rights is a good thing. It promotes productivity because people envy the rich and emulate them. People who complain about inequality are either sore looters or old foggies who need to get hip to the way things work nowadays. 9. Corporations can do no wrong. By definition, competition will take care of all problems, including any tendency monopoly. 10. The market, engineered and promoted by neoliberal experts, can always provide a solution to the problems seemingly endlessly caused by the market in the first place. There's always an app for that. 11. There's no difference between is and should be. Free markets both should be, normatively, and are, positively, the most efficient economic system, and the most just way of doing politics, and the most empirically true description of human behavior, and the most ethical and moral way to live, which in turn explains, justifies... And justifies why their versions of free markets should be and as neoliberals build more and more power increasingly are universal. Yeah, we've we've read a long list of things. But essentially the point of this is that neoliberals want to transform everything into the market because they think the market is a more efficient way of doing things and a better and more moral and more just way of doing things than anything else you can possibly imagine, including, you know, things like democracy. And you know, and any problem the system like produces will be solved by the system. Now, th- this is this is an incredibly radical political program in a lot of ways. In that it, well, you know, you you can you can you can argue whether it's a radical or a reactionary program. I mean, I think I think it's a it's a deeply reactionary one in some ways, but it is a it is a program that is vastly different than anything else that has come before it. Now, the challenge, of course, was getting anyone else to agree to this, and. The answer is that it's really hard to. It is extremely hard to convince people that, you know, everyone should bow down to the market, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the, the, the only way they can actually do this is by lying. Now, as, as Mirowski describes, the neoliberals operate an incredibly sophisticated intellectual and political network that forms a sort of Betroiska doll with Montpelier's society at its center and an ever-expanding group of more and less specialized think tanks, the shell-layers. So in this way, they they mirror the vanguard structure and sort of front group networks of their communist opponents, but they have significantly better financial backing. And this means that, you know, they can run the American Enterprise Institute and, uh, you know, with, with with copious amounts of coke money. And they can run this entire enormous network of think tanks that allow them to sort of act as a government in waiting. And the other thing that they're, they're going to attempt to do is take over the global regulatory bureaucracy, the IMF, the World Bank, eventually the World Trade Organizations, and force people to do this at gunpoint by using those organizations. Now, all they needed was a crisis that they could use to implement their policies. And next week, we're going to look at the crisis that gave them exactly what they wanted. This has been Nick Happen Here. Uh, find us on Instagram and on Twitter at HappenHerePod. Uh, find the rest of our stuff at CoolZone. And Goodbye. <laughs>
2: just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
5: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry. Every rematch. Every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
3: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people
4: I mean that's that's all I got today. Who's who's taking over? Come on. I it's, I did I guess, my part. I guess
10: it's me. I guess I guess it's me. <laughs> all right. Well,
4: then what what show is this and what do we do? This is it could happen here. We talk about
10: things being bad and also what you can do about them, but this is a this is a things are bad episode and not a what you can do about them episode. Specifically, this is part 2 of what I guess you could call our mini series on neoliberalism. And so, you know, yesterday we talked a lot about who the original neoliberals are. They, they, they have a bit of power in Germany in the 50s, but for the 50s and 60s and up to the 70s, they're kind of nobodies. They're, you know, they're, 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 they have a couple of think tanks, but they're kind, of, they're kind of just siloed off in the corner and they yell at people and people kind of ignore them. And what they're waiting for essentially is the right crisis. And in the 1970s, they finally find that crisis. Now I, I think it's kind of hard to remember in a lot of ways because of how the '80s went. But in the in the early 1970s, things are not looking good for capitalism. I mean, you have so you know Allende wins his election 1970. Uh, we'll talk yep. about what happened there in another episode. But you know, it's it's not just that in in 1940, uh, 1974. Well. So through, the, through the, the whole early 1970s, uh, Amilcar Cabral is just absolutely annihilating the Portuguese army, and he, you know, he he wins. He fights one of the, like one of history's greatest guerrilla wars, and this basically destroys the entire Portuguese state and causes the Carnation Carnation Revolution. The Portuguese colonies get free. The Derg takes power in Ethiopia, and then 1975, the North Vietnam just wins the like the war in Vietnam. And now, you know, the product of this is that. Cambodia falls, Laos falls. There's now, there's five socialist states in East and East Asia and Southeast Asia and, you know, also Mongolia, but nobody really cares about them. And as, as all of this is happening, as these sort of, as the anti-colonial armies are sort of marching their way through the world, there's an enormous economic crisis. And, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of things happening at the same time. One of the ones I think is probably the thing, the thing that people remember the most is there's just unbelievable inflation. And, you know, and, and economic growth starts to slow down, although some, something I think that we do need to keep in mind is that when I say economic growth slows, so economic growth from like from 1967, 1969 to 1979 is about 3.2%. Um, from 2000 to 2007, it was 2.3% in the US. And so, you know, when, when, when I say there's an economic crisis going on here, like economic growth in the 70s is better than any decade since but it's still considered the crisis decade because there's much inflation. And, you know, everyone has their own theory as to why this is happening, because the, the, the sort of Keynesians who, who've been in power, whose thing is, Oh, well, we can, you know, if, if there's ever an economic crisis, we can sort of, we can spend money and that, you know, then the government spending money will drag everyone out of the crisis. But in Keynesian theory, like there's not supposed to be inflation. If like, if, if unemployment is increasing and there's an economic crisis, there's not supposed to be inflation. And suddenly there's both. So the Keynesians have nothing, and they're sort of just running around, like just with, like basically like chickens with their head cut off, going, "Oh God, we have no idea what's happening. We don't know what's happening." And so, in, into this gap steps a bunch of weirdos. And so, I'm, I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna go through a few of the theories as to why this crisis happened because I don't know, and I think there's elements of truth in most of the st- stories ish kind of but you know it, it's this is extremely complicated and there's still no consensus on it so i'm, I'm going to start with the most crank which is uh so so the 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 ron paul people whole thing is yeah uh every, everything went to shit and has been shit ever since because the u.s abandoned the gold standard and like they're right into the extent that this happens so basically nixon's been trying to pay for the vietnam war and he can't and the, you know the the US dollar has been pegged to a certain amount of gold right and you can do this thing where if you get it, if you have an American dollar you can exchange it for that amount of gold and so uh charles de gaulle just is like okay we're just go- we're going to take all of this gold and so he does and the US starts running out of gold and so by 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 in the early 70s nixon is like fuck this you can't actually exchange dollars for gold anymore and now every single libertarian starts every rant with fiat currency but you know th- this 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 does have an effect on the economy which we'll talk about more in a bit um th- there's you know th- there's there's a lot of other explanations for this um the modern monetary theory people if you listen to them and also peter thiel weirdly uh will argue oh it's all because of the oil shock because oil prices increased uh, neoliberals will spend n- the neoliberals essentially they they blame too much government spending welfare programs and then like wages being too high and also bad monetary policy, there's like an entire there's there's like seventeen different Marxist explanations for it. Some of which are I'll I'll talk about like one and a half of them um, that are more plausible. One one of the explanations has to do with how essentially. So the other thing that's happening in the 1670s is that minorities and women are entering the workplace and are. You know, actually demanding to be paid the wages that white men have been being paid, and corporations essentially just can't afford this. And so, you know, they they have two choices: it's either we pay these people actual wages, or we just murder everyone. And they uh, took the second one. So, it's something that that has also been happening through this whole period is that profit rates in manufacturing just keep collapsing. And there there's there's a whole thing here about some Marxist theory stuff, but. The thing that's important is that, that and this this does happen in the seventies. Eventually, you hit a point where manufacturing growth becomes zero sum, and you know so you you can have manufacturing growth in one country, but you can't have it in another because at at a certain point you're producing too much stuff, and people start getting kicked out of the labor process. And this has a bunch of effects. One is it, has, it means you get a bunch of people who are unemployed, and two it means that there's just bunch of money floating around that nobody can actually invest in places and this is you know like all, all of the weird stuff the saudis do is just is basically from this this money there's all these whole piles of oil money that are just sitting around that nobody can invest in anything and that's going to cause you know that 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 that's that, that, that's going to cause a lot of stuff down the road but for now yeah we'll, we'll talk about the debt crisis this causes sort of next episode but for now, I'm going to try to pull all of these together and like have something, have a coherent thing that makes sense, which is essentially by by the end of the 70s, profit rates are declining. And then Nixon pulls, you know, Nixon pulls the dollar off the gold standard. And this causes the value of the dollar to just plunge. And this, this is the thing that sets off the 1970s oil crisis. So the 1970s oil crisis is weird because it's not an oil crisis. Every, everyone looks at the oil crisis and goes, oh, it's an oil crisis. It's a crisis because there wasn't enough oil. And it, it's it's not. It has nothing to do with that. It has literally nothing to do with supply of oil at all. What actually happens is that – so you, you have OPEC, right? OPEC is the, sort of, is the alliance of oil-producing cartels. Um, and they have this extremely complicated system where they – they, they, they sell oil to oil companies and then the oil companies sell that oil, to, they refine it and sell it to you. And they have this incredibly convoluted tax structure on it. And eventually, so the, the oil companies are having, an, like the, the price of oil starts to rise and the oil companies are basically just taking it all off the profit from this. And so OPEC goes, okay, you guys are going to pay taxes. And the oil companies just refuse. And so OPEC just unilaterally just, you know, OPEC just unilaterally is like, okay, you guys are going to pay taxes and we're going to make you pay taxes by inc- by just increasing the price that we sell you oil at. And this gets remembered as like OPEC increasing the price of oil, even though it was literally just them saying you're going to pay taxes. Now, this is the part that's very weird, which is that, okay, so I don't know, if, if you too, you two heard of the oil crisis, like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I
4: mean, the way it's always gone in textbooks is you talk about, like, the stagflation of the 70s and the fucking, you know, lines of of cars at gas stations going back blocks because of OPEC fuckery. And, yeah, that's how it's always framed is that, like, there was this big uh, political crisis over OPEC that led to the gas supply getting throttled, and it came at a time when the economy had already slowed down and everything got terrible. And then a few years later, we got RoboCop. Yeah, well we we did get a real pop, but the the, the really, important thing about
10: really, yeah. the story is that every single thing about that story is wrong. Every part of it. The, well, I mean the, there
4: were lines at gas stations. Yeah,
10: yeah, I mean there were lines yeah. at gas stations, but the lines at the gas stations have literally nothing to do with OPEC. It's just nothing. So, on October 16th, 19, 1973, the Arab members of of OPEC are like, "Fuck it, we're going to make the oil companies pay more for oil." And then the rest of rest of OPEC follows them. Now, 2 days later, is it, yeah, the the next day there is a completely unrelated thing to all of this, which is that wh- while while this is going on, the Yom Kippur war starts. And so e- Egypt and Syria attack Israel, um basically attack the Israel occupation forces in their country. Sure. And the the war is going really badly for them. They're I mean it's, it's I mean it's not going it's not going as badly as like the previous wars had gone for the Arab powers, but it's not going great. And so on October seventeenth, uh six Arab oil producing countries Declare that they're they're cutting the amount of oil they export by five percent per month until Israel returns its territories, that it had occupied since 1967, and they they have an embargo on the U.S. But and this this is the very important part. This has nothing to do with OPEC. This is not OPEC at all. It's not it is, this 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 is this is just a couple of random Arab countries are like we're going to do this, and you know and, and I think what what I think is interesting about Robert what you are talking about is is OPEC fuckery. You know is is how this gets remembered. And this this is one of the things that that neoliberals use to sort of push their model of the world, right? which is that everything functions off of supply and demand, and oh look, hey, the Arabs cut the supply of oil, and that's why the prices rose. But it's just it's just wrong. It's empirically wrong. The price cut happened I mean the, the price increases happened the day before the the the, the oil the, the, yeah, the, the, the price increases the day before the embargo, and the embargo and the oil price people are different groups. They have nothing to do with each other. But you know, this this gets sort of system like this this is this is how it's it's remembered. And, and you know, it's not even just how it's remembered, like, like like the Encyclopedia Britannica has the date in which all of this stuff happens wrong. They have the sequence of events wrong. Like all, all of the like most of the people who write about this remember this whole thing wrong. And and this is this is part of the sort of an enormous propaganda effort that the neoliberals are able to do at this moment, which is they convince everyone that, oh yeah, the price increases and the specifically the, ga- the gas shortages. Are, are about OPEC but again also like the, the US only imports like seven percent of its oil from from the countries who are doing the embargo at this point so the, the actual thing that's going on has to do with price it's, it's a weird thing it has to do with price controls and gas companies are hoarding gas because they don't want to sell it at price control levels and stuff like that but you know the the, the oil price increases you know the, the, yeah like it, it, it is bad like the price of oil does go up and there are shortages but it, it has nothing to do with like, it has nothing to do with the embargo. It has nothing to do with, you know, th- like the supply of oil going down. It's just companies didn't want to pay taxes. And so they started hoarding their oil instead of selling it. And they passed the price, the tax increase on to the consumers instead of just paying it. And, and as we talked about before, once this sort of like tax increase goes in, that OPEC, that, well, some of the OPEC countries want to do goes into place, like the price of oil does increase. And this does fuck the economy even more. But the economy had already been sort of a mess before this and it has one other very important effect and, and you know this is you know i, I guess i guess the, the theme of this episode is that the oil embargo matters but the oil embargo matters because people think it matters not because it did anything and the other group, so it matters in the US because everyone thinks that oh the, the scary arab nations are coming for us but it matters in the rest of the world because everyone else looks at this and goes wait hold on you can actually use commodities essentially you can use commodity prices like countries that like have raw you know commodities can use this control to actually go fight you know to like to go fight the west and go fight the capitalists and go like you know get money for themselves and this leads us into something (sighs) robert garrison do you have you, you ever heard of the g77 uh
4: is that like the 77 countries that have the most money?
10: Well, that, uh, that that's the that's the G7.
4: Well, yeah, but I was I was assuming yeah, no, the seventy seven might be just a longer list. I, no, no I have so not.
10: yeah, so so this is this is the other thing from this period that just is is completely lost, that's almost completely lost to history. And the G seventy seven is actually still around. But what, what they are was So in in the sixties, you, you know, you you have all of these countries that have recently gained independence. in sixties and seventies, all these countries that have gained independence um from their sort of colonial overlords and they start to band together into a, basically a voting block in the UN and also I, this is the other, the other weird part about the story is that so in the 1970s and 60s 70s in particular the UN actually matters like it's it's a it's a, it's a thing that people Yeah there was that like believe. 20ish yeah.
4: years after World War II where people were yeah. like maybe the, I mean a good example of the degree to which the UN actually used to be meaningful is watch the first street fighter movie <laughs> um, because the good guys in that are clearly based off the UN, and nobody thinks it's ridiculous that the United Nations are actually doing something. Um, it's fine to have Jean Claude Van Damme be the leader of the United Nations, fist fighting a guy that that makes total sense in the early yeah. 1990s.
10: And you know, and so in and, and part of we'll talk about this more next episode. But the, basically, so the the reason the UN is a joke right now is because of what the US was doing to stop the G77 from doing anything.
4: I mean, I would so, argue that fail, massive failures in Rwanda and uh, uh, Bosnia had a huge impact on that. Too. That too, so yeah. A couple think, of genocides go down, and people are like, "Well, what are these guys doing?" But yeah, yeah, yeah.
10: Well, this is this is this is how they got dysfunctional to the point where you can get that. Yeah, which is okay. so so okay. So the, the, you have you know and the, you have a bunch of countries that call themselves you know the 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 term they use for themselves is the third world, mm-hmm. and they come together to form this group, and it's 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 a really weird ideological mixed bag. Like, I mean, you have, you know, you have, you have like actual socialists like Tanzania's Julius Nerere and uh, Michael Borley in Jamaica. You've also got like Gaddafi and the Bathists.
4: And like both Gaddafi both was Iraq. a socialist. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, leftist paradise, Gaddafi's Lib- Libya. Um, you know, okay. okay I, my, yeah.
10: my, 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 my most contrarian hot take is that Salah Jadid was like actually kind of an ML. Who was the he was he was briefly the the the, the Baathist in charge of Syria and then he got overthrown mm-hmm. by uh, Hafez al-Assad. But
4: both of well, them I mean, are part of this. There's definite like actual like Marxist, you know, Lenin. Some like especially in the old school Baathists, like there were aspects of that. There was socialism kind of within it. It just. I, it would be f- nonsense. Like, for example, call Saddam Hussein's Baathist government oh, a socialist government. Yeah, no.
10: Yeah, and you know, and you can already see like this is this is this is this is a, this is a real grab And you have there's also just a bunch of random Latin American countries, like none of whom you can call socialist. And then there's also Saudi Arabia and Thailand are, are in this group. OK, to get a sense of how fractious this is, India and Pakistan are also both part of this and they fight two full scale wars while they're both in the G77. Actually, that's not even true. There's two full scale wars and then there's like another half war they fight in the 90s. Yeah, so th- this. Yeah. Like all, all the people in this thing are fighting, are literally fighting wars against each other. It, it's kind of a mess. And, you know, it's fun. It's fun in, in the mid 60s. And until 1974, it's kind of their, their whole thing is we have moral authority like we're yeah like we're you know we're we're, we're like we 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 have the authority of all of these nations have colonized us for a long time and we're going to use that, but in in the seventies, you know the the oil embargo happens, and a lot like most I think all most of the OPEC states are 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 in, um, are 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 in the G seventy seven, and they look at they look at the oil embargo and they look at OPEC raising prices. And they go, wait, we can do this too. And the OPEC states are like, oh, hey, we can use this to push the whole, you know, we can use it to like push the whole power of like of the third world. And they, they their plan to do this is something called the New International Economic Order, which is also something that no one has ever heard of that is extremely important that has just. So I guess the spoiler alert is that this this movement gets crushed so thoroughly that nobody knows what the New Economic Order is and the third world is now a slur. But yeah. you know the the thing that they're trying to do is create a new calls the new international economic order, a trade union of the poor and so it, it's it's this thing they're trying to get passed through the u n that would in you know just designed to sort of ensure the economic sovereignty of these developing nations um and i'm I'm, I'm gonna read a list of the stuff that's in here um so a an absolute right of states to control the extraction and marketing of their domestic natural resources b the establishment and recognition of state man- managed resource cartels to stabilize and raise commodity prices c the regulation of transnational corporations d no strings attached technology transfers from north to south e the granting of preferential uh, trade preferences to countries in the south and f forgiveness for, for certain debts that uh, states in the south owe to the north so this is like, this thing, if the international economic order had ever been implemented at all, it would have completely reversed, the basically completely reversed the balance of economic power, shifting it basically from countries like the US, like, you know, Western Europe, like Japan, that are these giant manufacturing powerhouses, to countries that produce, you know, raw materials. And there would have, you know, and the other thing that would have happened from this is, you have these, the the no strings, you have a debt relief for the global South and also these these technology transfers. And the plan is basically to create a a bunch of mini OPEX for just, or not even mini OPEX, create OPEX basically for every commodity. So, you know, you'd have like an OPEC, but it's for like bauxite or like copper. And, you know, they would use, they would, you know, you you have all these OPEX and each one of them uses their power and they all cooperate to to to, to make sure that there's a stable price for, for all of these commodities. And an, another part of this is that it's supposed to basically enshrine the right of countries to be able to just like nationalize resource companies. So, you know, you have like a British oil company. I was like, well, we just take it out. Now it's ours. And the threat of this is great enough that if you read conservatives in the era, they will say things like the Soviet union is no longer a threat. The greatest danger to the West today is the G77. Yeah. And, yeah. Huh. And this is this, yeah, it's, it's these, these people are enormously Right powerful. past that. Yeah, yeah. No, no one even remembers this anymore. And, and it's, it's because largely it's because of just how just unbelievably badly these guys got stopped. Um. You know, and, and one of the other things that happens out of the product of this is this is where the G7 comes from. And it's originally, and I think this is another thing. Oh, so, yeah <laughs> the, the the other funny part about this. So the G seven is originally a secret alliance. Like through this whole through the whole seventies, nobody knows G seven exists. It's basically it starts as this like secret meeting of a bunch of uh, finance ministers. And eventually they they add uh, Canada and I think Japan to it. And it goes up to seven members. And you know they 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 have a couple of things they're trying to deal with. They're trying to deal with the economic collapse. But one of the big thi- like one of the biggest things they're dealing with, is the G seventy seven and OPEC, and this this the result of this is this these enormous series of fights in uh implausibly the united nations conference on trade and development which is i think this this is this is the last time ever that the fate of the entire world would be decided in a battle in like a subcommittee of the un and there's there's years and years and years of negotiations between well the the g7 hasn't Openly declare itself as G seven. It's sort of just. It's basically the, the 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 rich European countries. So it's Canada, France, Germany, Italy, the UK, the US, and and Japan, like for, form this alliance and are like locked in together in order to stop the G G7 seven from G seventy seven from doing anything. And this is this is the this is the other you know the, the other crisis that the neoliberals are responding to is it's it's not just and in many ways this is the one that scares them more because. You know, it's not just that there's an economic crisis. It's not just that, like, capitalists are afraid because they're losing money. It's if this stuff goes through, the entire balance of power in the entire global economy is going to change, and it's, it's going to swing into the favor of a bunch of non-Western countries, and probably more, most importantly for the neoliberals, they're going to enshrine the right of states to take things away from corporations and regulate them, and this is just absolutely completely unacceptable to both the neoliberals and just every single other organization that's even tangentially involved with sort of the western nations so the neoliberals i talked about this a bit in in the last episode which is that they, they've been working on a strategy in order to take power that doesn't rely on states and so what, what they've been doing for about 20 years is essentially infiltrating and working their way up through like take, basically basically taking over uh the international monetary fund and the world bank who in this period and this is another thing i think is, is very weird and hard to remember which is that the imf and the world bank like there was a time when they weren't completely evil like like the imf was basically set up to make sure that countries wouldn't just run out of money right it was supposed yeah. to give people like yeah and the world and bank was supposed came, to a and it's it's
4: turned into sort of this like international debt system for, yeah. for poorer countries where they're yeah always in a yeah. lot and, and being forced into austerity yep. measures and the like yeah
10: yeah and and that but that that didn't used to be true it used to be you know the, the IMF had a bunch of Keynesians in it and same with the world bank and both both the IMF and the world bank's leadership for a lot of this period wanted to negotiate and you know and i think this 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 is this is this is where we're going to leave it here with basically the 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 the, the entire world is in an apocalyptic crisis there is the the all the economies are collapsing the the, the sort of the the the, 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 ar- the armies of of the anti-colonial like world are are moving and the the, the G77 looks like it's it's literally <laughs> on the verge of of you know completely restructuring the economic system in a way that actually would have been slightly more fair and just than what the system that existed then, which was also infinitely more just and fair than the system that exists now. And next episode, we're going to talk about how this all fell apart and how there was a choice in the 70s between either corporations can make money or people can have things. And the, 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 the product of what the neoliberals are going to do in the next episode is that they are going to their, their solution to this problem is to tell the entire wretched of the earth to eat shit and die. And yeah, that's, that's, that's the episode. It's yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, history. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun. time. Um, okay. Uh, well, we got any, uh, we got any, any pluggables? What do we, what do we do at the end of episodes? Sophie, where are we? Thank you. Who for, are we?
8: Thank you for listening. We'll be back on a day at a time. Maybe.
4: We're not hearing you, Sophie. I think you're muted.
8: I'm not muted. I'm not muted.
4: Oh, what? there we go. I'm not okay. muted.
8: I haven't been muted the whole time. N- we didn't hear
4: you. Yeah, didn't I hear so uh, yeah, I just randomly halfway
8: through. That's so weird. Uh, I I said we'll be back on a day or a time. In the yeah, meantime. at some point
4: we'll be back. Find us then. Yeah. Uh, and find us tomorrow, unless this comes out on Friday, in which I case think this is going go- Friday. Eat with your family. Is, Be with the ones you go- love.
8: This is dropping on Friday.
4: Adopt a cat. Adopt two cats. Maybe four. Adopt three cats. Four. Adopt four cats. Yeah. Get a number of cats greater than the number you have and put them in your house. We'll see you on Monday. What, what? Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
8: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History
5: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more.
3: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people.